Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special bonus episode of the Spoiler Warning Podcast. This is our coverage of the 2021 Sundance Film Festival. I'm Christopher Schneezy. And I'm Stephen Miller. And if you're joining us for the first time, the Spoiler Warning Podcast is a weekly film review program. Each week in the show, we're going to dive in, debate, discuss, and argue over the latest films coming to a streaming platform near you. As we said, this time we're talking about a, a, a number of films that technically came to a streaming platform near you. Um, you know, just last a week ago, it feels like forever ago now, um, we partook in the remote version of the Sundance Film Festival and... Uh, you know, not only did they go remote, but they offered like an all you could eat pass um, so long as you could fit it into all the available windows. And uh, Stephen and I did an uh, insane thing. <laughs> which yeah, is... Much like a real all you can eat pass. I tried to fit in too much and no one was happy. <laughs> <laughs> we got a little indigestion, um, yeah. metaphorically speaking. And uh, yeah, we, we saw a lot of things. Um there are going to be a few things from the festival that we will do full reviews for. These are things that are going to be coming to you um, soon. And they could be some other things that hopefully will be coming to you soon. We might not know quite yet. Um, but yeah, so we're going to start off with this episode this week where we are going to basically briefly touch about uh, whatever it turned into, about 27 films Um just just briefly to let you know the sort of the uh the round robin of everything that we saw and uh this this should this should be fun are you excited steven <laughs> yeah I, i'm excited maybe maybe we should just preemptively say a little bit about what our experience was like with this because we've done a few different festivals by now uh we've done a few virtual festivals even with tiff and what little bits of New York Film Festival we can count as uh, having attended a film fest. Um, but I think with like, if, if you compare this to like Tribeca, you compare it to SF Film Festival with the in-person TIFF two years ago, like how did Sundance stack up and what was your strategy in surviving all the madness? Um, well, like a not so smart person, I didn't have a strategy at first. Um, I think... You know, when we were planning, when we were planning what to see at first, it was like, well, there's blocks and things cancel each other out. So we'll just get these. As soon as the festival started, it was pretty clear that within your window of time, you could start at anything. So as soon as you finished one during your block, you could immediately switch over to anything that wasn't already sold out. And uh, rather than have a strategy, I just said, well, hell, <laughs> why not see everything? And that's when I learned that scarcity is a good thing when it comes to film festivals, because you are not guaranteed to like everything that you see. And when you're watching things that you didn't pick, you just said like, hey, this is a 90 minute film that is available in a time slot where I have 90 minutes. Um, you will watch a film and, you know, like, yes, it's good to see things that you weren't expecting or necessarily seeking out. Um, but also when you try to fit like 28 films <laughs> into five days, um, you, by the end of it, you kind of want to die. <laughs> so. Yeah. And, and I, because Chris's number is 28 and we should say that was five days with no days taken off work. Like <laughs> this yeah. was a, a pretty ridiculous amount. I did a meager 24. I felt like I was going to die from 24. I <laughs> early in the festival, I think day one or day two, 
you realized that you could pile multiple films ahead of each other. And I had like some prior commitments or whatever, like the first two days I just stuck with what we had like agreed to watch and yeah. the rest of the fest i felt like i was just trying to catch up to you <laughs> i was just like damn it he's already seen this too oh no and then it, it was just a domino effect of trying to catch stuff and, and and so for anybody listening who didn't partake in the festival or didn't doesn't know how it worked essentially you could if you had the all you can eat pass there were three hour blocks of times where different films were premiering if you didn't catch it during the premiere you had the option to two days later catch it during this 24-hour window of which you could start it at any time during the day if it didn't sell out. And there are things like Coda, which sold out like a few hours into the day on their second run thing. Um, So there were things that we had marked on our list that was like, we're going to watch this premiere. We have the alternate premiere that we could watch in that time, but then we're going to do the catch-up on the 24-hour time, which given that some of the days of the festival were during work, it would be like, okay, I'm going to get up. I'm going to start this movie at 7 a.m., try to finish it before work starts. And there were some of the things where I was like, oh, I can fit this into the block already and not have to catch it during the 7 a.m. showing. So it was, I was hurting myself to help myself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it turned out the pain was worse than <laughs> than the, the whatever the opposite of pain is, the soothingness. Yeah, for, of, for me, the... Br- my breaking point happened, I think it was Saturday afternoon, so it was fairly early, uh, maybe, maybe some, no, Saturday, Saturday afternoon, there was a moment when I was trying to play catch up where I was like, if I time this just right, <laughs> I can hit three movies in a single three hour block. Like, of course it's going to run over, but like, I'm going to hit three premieres in this block and it'll be great. And so I, I remember doing it and it was wedged between other blocks where I had multiple things too. So I remember like 3 p.m. on the dot, I got into passing and then the moment it ended, I got into cusp. And then if I ended the moment the credits started and immediately hopped over to the Sparks Brothers, then it would not yet be 6 p.m. I think I started Sparks Brothers at like <laughs> 5.59 in 30 seconds. Yeah. Like it, it was just a daring, um, a daring push. And at the end of Sparks Brothers, I was like, why did you do that to yourself? That was so many <laughs> movies back to back without even like going to the bathroom or getting up to get a drink of water or anything. Um, yeah. And after that, I started taking it a little bit more sane. Like I still tried to hit a lot of stuff, but I... I allowed myself to just not watch a movie if I wasn't vibing with it. And that definitely made it made it an easier experience. Yeah, I think um, Saturday is the day that broke me because that was the day that it was like got up at 645, started watching the first movie at seven. And then it was literally like movie and next movie and next movie and next movie and next movie and not next movie and until I was watching a documentary after midnight <laughs> that I really did not like. <laughs> And then I just said, I don't know if I can do this again tomorrow. We'll see. So on Sunday is when I started, like if I was trying to fit something in and it was running over another block and I wasn't really vibing with it, I did bail on it. So my 28 was the movies that I finished. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) But yeah, and then the last, the last two days of the festival, I basically just uh, slept through. So, (laughs) so that was nice. (laughs) Yeah. And that's why I had even the barest chance of catching up to you. And even still, you kept a lead of four. And that's the movies that you finished. (laughs) 
Um, but yeah, speaking of movies that we finished, um, so we're, we're first going to talk about films that we both finished. Um, and then right at the end, um, we are going to kind of like hit a few things that only one of us got to see. And then, yeah, and then we'll just, that, that'll be the episode. So <laughs> yeah. Ho- hope everyone enjoys this. Some of these films, um, you will be able to see sometime soon. Um, if, if we were really good at what we do, we would have the dates of some of those releases already in, in front of us. Look, with with like 20-something things to go over, anything is too much work. Yeah. <laughs> like, let's be real. <laughs> Making this list was already a feat in and of itself. So what do you say, Stephen? We just jump into uh, our, our lists. Let's do it. All right. Uh, so I'll start us off. I think this is the first thing... This is the first thing that that we both watched in the festival. I don't remember if there was a weird order here or not. But no, uh, the first thing we watched was Coda. Oh yeah, yeah, true, true, true. Um, well, anyways, alphabetically, <laughs> which is I guess what we're doing minus the the only one of us saw him list. Um, the first film on the list is a little film called Censor, which is sort of a '80s throwback horror film. Um, but it is about a woman who works for a censorship bureau organization group and her job is to watch these like really gnarly um slasher films and she you know makes notes about what scenes need to be removed if it's going to be able to get an r rating instead of like a nc-17 or whatever the equivalent is over in the uk um and uh basically she becomes obsessed with the films of a particular filmmaker and uh a certain thing about her past that that filmmaker's films sort of remind her of um, so do, do we, I usually I throw it to you, but should I just say what I, what I thought of it, Steven? Uh, yeah. I mean, just how, however you want to do this. <laughs> okay. I guess whoever introduces it can go first maybe. Um, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, so this is a film that when it started off, I, I really, really liked the opening to this film. Um, I really liked the idea of this person who's sort of hopefully seemingly well-adjusted, who maybe has had some trauma of some sort in her past, who makes her living by trying to figure out how to edit um, slasher films for con- uh, for content, and then how her sort of, um, you know, ability to separate r- real life from this stuff sort of starts to break down. Like that wall she builds as she does it starts to break down. And I was like, I was just really, really into like the premise of this film, the 80s throwback feel to it. Like everything was super, super great. And then at the end of the movie, it just becomes an 80s slasher film. And I just didn't care anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's sort of my my quick spiel on Censor. Yeah, uh, my, let's see, my quick review. uh, I didn't hate it, but I hated you for making me watch it. No, just kidding. I mean, I, I also was kind of hooked at, at the beginning. I liked the idea of it. I thought it was a it was a good use of like the 80s VHS type aesthetic to make it be set in a period when a person was literally censoring VHS tapes like that. That is just yeah. right for getting that kind of tone. Um, and it worked well for a while. But even when it was working well, I wasn't happy I was watching it because I could tell like uh, this is just going to make me <laughs> uncomfortable. Like there there is a film that she watches the first time that kind of it ties with her past that just creeped me the hell out. I, I was just sitting in my living room watching it. Like, what am I doing? Why, why am I watching this right now? I'm not going to be happy. They're not happy. Nobody's happy. <laughs> what are we doing? Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it did. I kind of felt the same where it, it went a bit more extreme over time and it, it lost me there. But I think like the tone it wants to set is 
reasonably good. It kind of, it reminded me of a movie that was at Cannes a couple of years ago called Knife and Heart. That was like a, a French movie about like, like erotic horror in France. And it was the same kind of thing where like, that was a movie about people trying to make a movie. And there's like a slasher on set in the movie who keeps killing people. Um, and this is kind of similar where it's like, it's about movie making. And then it also is the movies that it's about. And it, the blurring is fun, but yeah, the campiness plus my inability <laughs> to enjoy horror kind of, a kind of shot this one for me in the end. Yeah. The, the one thing that that sensor did teach us is that the 9 PM Pacific block is actually the midnight block. And there was mm -hmm. a pretty obvious thematic, uh, resonance between all the films that we saw during the 9 PM block that, uh, might've, might've, uh, helped with our choices <laughs> as we were selecting yeah, I, films. I may have stopped watching 9 p.m. block movies after Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's why um, you were having behind me, because I was just cramming those in, because that was the exactly, one where it's like... yeah, you were still powering through. Because <laughs> I, I was waking up... I, for the first few days, was still afraid that, like, that somehow you would be able to get access to a movie before 7 a.m. Like they might open it early. So I was getting yeah. up and sitting here with a cup of coffee at like 625, just like, I'm ready for it. I'm ready for it. <laughs> and that is great unless you are planning on watching movies till midnight too. So I decided to sacrifice the, uh, the evening for it. <laughs> uh, but a movie that you should not sacrifice and one that definitely is not the 9 p.m. block uh, is a film called Coda. Uh, I mean, there are a handful of movies that if you've read anything about Sundance, you may have already heard about. Coda is certainly one. This was picked up by Apple in, I believe, the biggest festival purchase of all time. Yep. Um, so this is a big crowd-pleasing film uh, that is about a, a girl, a senior in high school, who is the daughter of two deaf parents and the younger sister of a deaf brother. Uh, and she wants to be a singer. And this is kind of about how she navigates those two worlds, the, the world of ASL and the world of being in school as a teenager trying to fit in and how those two cross paths and the you know, what she has had to do on behalf of her family and how much of that is allegiance and how much of that is like her being tied to them in a way that you need to break free of. And this is just a great, a great, great, great feel good movie. <laughs> I can't objectively analyze it. Here's what I know. This is the first thing I watched at Sundance. The first thing anybody watched, I think was the opening night film, like I think was the designation. Um, yep. And I just had the biggest smile on my face from watching it. It, the, it is a kind of obvious movie. Like it goes through all the beats that you would expect a film like this to go through. Um, you kind of know where it's headed. You know when an emotional moment is going to come up. Um, it has a male romantic lead, the kid from Sing Street, who, whatever, not a lot going on there. But the core dynamic <laughs> Oh, jeez, that's where the kid's from. Yeah. Um, so we've oh, wow. heard him sing before too. Um, but the core dynamic of this girl and her family was, I thought just completely fantastic. Like I, I was completely won over by this movie. Like it, it, the, the cry moments are such good cry moments. It hits a lot of beats that, uh, our collective favorite film of last year, sound of metal hit. Um, the lead actress I think could easily be like the next huge lead actress. I thought that she was so charismatic and charming and she was able to sing and emote and do sign language at the same time like it th this was just a good feel good movie that i can only imagine in a crowded theater would just have like done completely gangbusters yeah um i i enjoyed koto a lot um i think i think for about the first third to half of the film it 
it had this feeling of being sort of like a TV movie. There was something about yeah. it that just didn't seem big movie to me. Um, and, it, and it took me a while to get over that, to be honest. Um, but I, I think by the end of it, it had 100% won me over, obviously with like the emotional beats. This is a film that like from the moment the premise is sort of given to you and the like the first time she talks to her teacher in choir class and the teacher says like you should think about this you're like okay i know the entire plot of this entire movie now because yep. it's obvious i have all the pieces that i need to do but somehow it's it's one of those things we, we've talked about this in the past when like a film can be obvious but it executes on the obviousness so well that you still praise it as though you didn't see it coming like it's like you knew it was going to do exactly what it did and then it did it and you're like yeah you did it <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so I really, really enjoyed it. And there's also something too that, like, I wasn't familiar with the 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 actors who were playing the family members, um, but they're right. you know well known in the like that community. And one of the things they do that's really, really interesting is the type of acting they're doing in this is so different from um, what is happening in in Sound of Metal. Like in Sound of Metal, um, the Who's the guy that he goes to see? What was that character's name? Do you remember? Uh, I don't remember. All right. Like, well, well, like Randy or Rick or something. <laughs> Joe, it's one of those names. But but that guy that he goes to see, that guy is saying profound things to him, right? And he's... And, and like, he his acting is, is acting, but the emotion comes from the seriousness and the the, the words he is saying, right? This film has people like they're signing but they are emotionally selling how important what it is they're saying is so it's not i am not recognizing the words that are being spoken as being profound i am watching somebody feel what they're signing at me and it works so well and it's like it's 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 different than what i'm used to seeing but you're like wow like that performance was fucking amazing just the way that yeah. they like the scenes were like they're arguing right with three people sitting around a table arguing in sign language and just being like this is this is like fucking intense conversation that's happening right now and i think i i really really enjoyed that portrayal of everything um so by the end of this film as i said really really enjoyed it and uh, i'm glad that i saw it yeah, there's one moment in particular involving uh, advice the father is giving to a young suitor that that is just a great like example of, you know, not not just serious acting in sign language, but like extremely comedic acting non-verbally yeah. that I thought was. And it also gets a little hint of how much creativity there is even within ASL. Like it seems like there are there are basic signs, but then there's a lot of freedom to do more to emphasize or paint a picture uh and i thought that there were a few big laughs in this movie that are just about like the the father actor basically i yeah, assume yeah. he was half improvising right like just go nuts <laughs> with this scene <laughs> yeah yeah it was pretty great cool um well moving on to another film also four letters which i thought was less great <laughs> um is a little documentary called cusp um and it is basically a little film that follows it was like three or four girls in Texas as I think it's like, is it the summer after their senior year or is it the summer after their junior year? Um, I think junior. I, I don't think they're quite, I don't think they're about to graduate. Gotcha. Okay. So, so it basically it's following these, these young women. It's sort of a look at um, the things that are going on um, for them, their views on like their world and where they're headed and their interaction with the boys in their life. Um, and if I'm honest, 
there was something about this film that felt I felt like I felt like every shot I was watching right before the filmmaker hit record they asked a leading question to the kids and then hit record and then like tried to play it as though all the topics they're discussing are coming up on their own organically in the conversation. And I never really felt to me, it, it just felt very like I felt the influence of the filmmaker trying to drive these conversations amongst these girls. And for some reason it just didn't, it didn't hit me as authentic the way I would want a film um, like this to be. And then by the end, when the summer's over and all the girls are making these declarations to the audience about like all the stuff they learned over the summer, I was not convinced any of them actually learned any of that over the summer. It just felt like you can't talk magically about this experience that you had when you haven't shown me that journey that you've been on this whole time. I don't know. I, I, for me, it just didn't work. I know you are more positive on this than me, Sassiman, so I'll let you praise this film. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm positive. I'm definitely not raving about this movie. I think th this was a good... So there were a lot of documentaries that we're going to talk about uh, tonight. I would actually say Sundance's strong suit might be documentary. At least that's the sense I got just from the, the number of things that I thought were at least quite good that I watched. Uh, and this is a genre of documentary that... I'm a fan of when it comes to the fiction world as well, which is the like cinema verite, like fly on the wall. Let's just watch people interacting and get a sense of who they are. Um, and in this case, the, the premise is very simple. It's let's watch a few girls at this kind of, you know, brittle age, uh, talk to each other and grow up. And they clearly, they come from difficult family backgrounds. They're not surrounded by the greatest people. This is kind of like the, the documentary and female version of like big time adolescence or something. It's about like that particular time in life and how these people operate. Um, it didn't feel stagey to me. I found it very moving. The, the way I saw it is any teenager who is in a documentary is performing. Of course, yeah. like they spend their life performing for a phone, you know, the TikToks and the Snapchats and all the whatchamacallits, <laughs> you know, <laughs> You know, they, they spend their life performing, but it is still revealing because kids are not very good at hiding who they are. And yeah. so what I found very interesting about this movie is just watching the different way these girls performed, how they thought they ought to be in front of the camera, like the things that they would say and do knowing that they are in a documentary, like knowing that this is what they are presenting to the world, like justifying terrible behavior from boys and talking about their boyfriends and doing things and getting piercings that are meant to show how like daring you are and how free-minded you are. And all, all of that just rung. It, it reminded me of American honey. It, it just rung like extremely true to me, even though it didn't add up to a lot. Like I think this was a pretty minor documentary, but I thought as a respite from everything else I was watching, this was the kind of like put me in another person's shoes documentary that just it, it it moved me in exactly enough of a way. Like it didn't it didn't do any more or less than I thought it it had to do. Yeah. Um. Now a movie that moved me much more uh, is a film called Flea, uh, an animated documentary. Another one of the kind of big purchases. Uh, I think Neon picked this one up, so people should be able to see it at, at some point. Um. And this is an animated documentary about a an Afghani refugee who basically escaped from Afghanistan, spent a while in Russia, and eventually made his way to Denmark. And this is him speaking to a documentarian and dictating what he remembers about how he 
immigrated, like how he how he got to where he is today. Um, and it's a very kind of unreliable narrator dictation of memory. Uh, I don't believe this is like a rotoscope style documentary. I think it is literally they filmed it and then someone went back and animated with his voiceover narration informing roughly what they would animate. Um, and and obviously, me of, I was going to say, obviously, like part of the documentary is him laying on a table recounting a story. And even if they yep. did rotoscope that, that's literally the only thing they could rotoscope because this is all flashback, exactly. basically. So Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Yeah, so 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 this is pretty much all creative animation. Um, I'm I loved this movie. Um, this is actually gun to my head. I think this is the favorite film that I watched at Sundance. Like if mm. I had to name one, I think this was it. Yeah, kind of surprising. I didn't expect it to hit me this hard. Um, I'm a sucker for this genre. Uh, like Waltz with Bashir is a movie I really loved that is also an animated documentary. Uh, that is about an Israeli soldier kind of remembering uh, like an atrocity in Lebanon. And it was the same kind of thing of like flashing back in his history and striking. You can do a lot with animation. Like you can have a whimsical tone one second and then a very dark tone. And you can kind of, you can reflect the fuzziness of memory in a way that I find very, very interesting. Uh, Persepolis also came to mind too, like just a kind of moving coming of age story. And this, I just thought was so that what this film managed to do, which is tell like a very quiet story and really get you inside someone's head and just animate what it felt like for him, just by virtue of like hearing him tell his story and then trying to put, some kind of visual to it. I just found it incredibly moving. And I think this is the kind of narrative that like, we don't get a lot in an authentic way. Like it is very rare that a refugee can tell their story, especially if they're living in a way where they've had to kind of cover up who they are and why they got there. And that I, I just think this movie is wrestling with so many interesting things about like your history and the unreliable nature of your identity. And it just, it worked on me real, real, real well. This was a, a great like 7am watch that really stuck with me. <laughs> oh, dang 7am. Yeah. I, this I, was I the first of the day. Yeah. I definitely picked this up during a, a midday slot where I had like a window open where I threw it in real fast. Um, but yeah, I, I think for me, what is the most interesting about this documentary? Um, and, uh, you know, aside from the animation style and like the way it's a story that's trying to like hide the identity of the person who's telling the story is for me, what was most interesting is that this is a person who not has blocked out these events, but has not really talked with anybody about these events until the moment that he is now talking about these events. Um, so it's like he is at a place in his life where, you know, his like he's basically wanting to tell this stuff to his partner. Um, and like this is he's reliving these moments sort of for the first time. So it's kind of you're you're you're, you're watching a person discover this past in a way as they try to recount it because they have had to sort of just keep both their their own identity and their like worldly identity all a secret this whole time and now they're able to sort of like unleash it in this way and it's there there's there's something really really interesting and compelling about just that person kind of discovering this past for the first time in a long long time and also they haven't really had the ability to, to talk about it with the other people who are involved in the story because of stuff you'll find out if you watch this film. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I think it was definitely an, an interesting film that like for a lot of the runtime, I was, uh, 
mentally stimulated and intrigued by the storytelling and then by the end once again like just out of nowhere just fucking wrecked me with like the emotion that comes at the end um which i was incredibly surprised by um where it's like the story is all about one aspect of his life and then when it becomes an uh, about a second aspect of his life it just like hit me for, for like, it's like amazing yeah, yeah i don't know where it's, just, it's i just i thought the ending of this was really really brilliant and the the entire journey that he goes on is is really you know it's a harrowing story um and that's it's very very interesting to watch so yeah i'm i'm a fan as well cool um well the next uh film on the list is a uh, a little film called how it ends um, which is, so I, I think there's a pretty obvious theme of most of the films that we watched this year. Um, there's a sense that a lot of these things were made during COVID, you know, like oh, small yeah. scale stories, um, not a lot of people involved in making the production. Um, this one, how it ends is, uh, actually like a literal COVID story. Like there's even a title at the end of the film that says like lovingly made during the pandemic or something like that. Um, but basically the premise is that tomorrow morning, a meteor is going to hit the earth and kill everyone. And everybody is sort of just trying to figure out what they're going to do for their last night here on earth. And, um, something about the being, uh, close to death, um, has caused the, literal manifestation of everybody's younger selves to be sort of with them. And it is the story of uh, one young woman and her younger woman self (laughs) going about their night, trying to, you know, put their affairs in order and um, try to find something fun to do on their last nights here on earth. Um, And I thought this was an incredibly endearing film, a film that probably like, you know, we put it on the list because whatever seemed fun. Um, but I thought it was actually like just something about that walking the empty streets, going to what has to be everybody's real house <laughs> in LA and just kind of interact. It, it, the entire film is like a series of little sketches of just encountering another person on their property and experiencing how, what they're doing for the last day of their life. And, uh, then going on to find the next person. And I just, I, I just, the the film left a smile on my face like the entire movie um the everyone in it is great (laughs) um and yeah i just i had an amazing time with it and uh i i I would highly recommend (laughs) yeah uh one word chalamet this was a this was a movie that is is not like being very well received at all like i i see a lot of like half star one star two star types of reviews um going on on letterbox of people who are just like angry at this movie they feel like it's like trifling it's nothing it's just people fucking around and i don't get it because great i i watched this <laughs> but, but steven it is all those things but it's great yeah, <laughs> yeah but that's what makes it fun uh i watched this at 7 a.m on Sunday. So after the day that I broke, so I was in need (laughs) of a laugh. And like many of these movies, because you, you actually picked pretty much the entire schedule. I did not read the synopsis. I was like, okay, um, you know, I trust Chris. I'm just going to go in blind. Going <laughs> to see what happens. Like, I, I recognize Zoe Lister-Jones. It's like, okay, th- this is an actress that I'm somewhat aware of, and she's making a movie. I'll, I'll, I'll watch it. Like, she did, her and her husband did Breaking Upwards, too, before. So that's kind of like a, I, I don't know. I, I was a little familiar. I was totally charmed by this movie. I, like, immediately, I started belly laughing at, like, a bunch of scenes when I realized, like, 
this is her younger self and how nonchalantly the movie plays it. Um, like Nick Kroll just made me crack up immediately. <laughs> uh, the Olivia Wilde scene that I referenced before, yeah. I had a lot of good laughs there too. Like it just felt like people having fun and messing around. And I, I don't know why. Like I get that this should feel like a like direct to Comedy Central movie or something like that, but it it didn't for me at all. Like I had a lot of laughs. I felt some real emotion. Like there, there are moments when she. Like she chats with her dad and her mom. And in both of those, they are both very funny for what they kind of reveal about the parents, but they also do feel kind of moving. Like it does feel yeah. like a person reconciling with their past. But like there's a great moment where the dad doesn't recognize her younger self, <laughs> which is such yeah. a good, like <laughs> condemning aspect of their relationship. Um, it was pretty amazing. Yeah. I don't like, I just love seeing all these comedians, like, like, Tawny Newsom shows up, like pretty much the whole cast of It's Always Sunny shows up. Like it just made me smile. It made me laugh. Uh I don't know. I'm I'm here for it. I don't know why the haters gotta hate. I was I was a fan of this movie. Yeah. And and it, um, it, it, it it is too. I don't I don't know whether to to me, like I said at the beginning of this episode, that I think being limited um is better for the a festival because you can only see the things you're really interested in and whether or not you like it there's breaks between things and you're good to go. But I wonder too, if people who saw this, it was one of four things they might've seen the entire festival. And they're just like, man, that was not worth it for me to have like checked in at this exact time to see this film or like, I don't know. Like, that's the only thing I can think of is people didn't have so many things and it wasn't big enough for them to feel satisfied in it. But I think especially amongst like so many things that we saw, it was like, this was just a nice fresh breath of air and just, really really enjoyed what i what i what i had there yeah it 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 cracked me up i mean haters can hate i'm sure if i were to watch it again like a year from now it would not mean anything to me (laughs) but for that (laughs) moment in sundance it was kind of perfect i i assume Um, you watched it a year from now when hopefully we're all vaccinated and life is back to normal Well, speaking of movies that were clearly made during the COVID pandemic uh, and are maybe kind of about COVID, uh, we also watched uh, In the Earth, uh, a movie by Ben Wheatley, uh, who I'm not super familiar with, except for Free Fire. Um, But this is a film that just from the description seemed kind of right up, at least your alley. It is a (laughs) sort of sci-fi futuristic-ish take of a a virus has ravaged the Earth. And there's like a traveler and he and someone else go head out to like a science station and they are studying the nature of the earth and they meet people along the way. And what ensues is a kind of psychedelic. uh, I don't even know what to call it. I was not a fan of this movie. I, (laughs) I did not like it at all. I thought this was a very, very, very abrasive film, like kind of intentionally, of course, like it's trying to be abrasive. It's trying to put you in a disorienting headspace, but it just made me want to be watching better movies. Like it felt like a, like a lesser version of annihilation or even like yeah. upstream color. If we want to talk about like people and plants and kind of how that behavior melds together. Like I, I didn't feel like this movie had a lot of new things going for it. It was kind of a mashup of really gory kind of slasher flick, which fit with the, you know, midnight screening aesthetic that we were watching and an attempt to be a kind of heady, 
sci-fi film. And I think it completely failed the heady sci-fi thing. And that made me not want to root for it as a slasher film either. So it, I, I don't know. It, it, it was definitely like, it was provocative. Like it, it got a reaction out of me, but my reaction was like, dear God, don't go to that high pitch noise anymore. Like, I don't want any more of this. Don't strobe for another five minutes. Like it, it was just too in your face for me. Yeah. So, so my question for you, Stephen, is until they get to the location where the strobes start going off, did you like it? up until then or were you already sort of disconnected from it by that point i wasn't disconnected but i wasn't a fan of it like there's a place they go before that that they spend the a good chunk of the film in and i was like i was moderately interested in it but that was already kind of getting in the horrific slashery territory that i just wasn't i wasn't that intrigued by like it was off-putting but i didn't feel like it was off-putting with with much to say yeah um i'll say until about the strobe section i really 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 like this movie um i was a hundred percent vibing with this um i was really really fascinated by um just what was going on first of all like just the depiction of these people like alone on this journey through this woods trying to go find this other scientist deep in the woods where th- this ex- unknown experiment is taking place. Like, I was I was on board there. Once you meet the the first person they meet who starts introducing a little bit of lore of what's going on, I was still even when he's like taking posed photographs, I was still like this movie's fucking great, <laughs> and I I, I I was really really enjoying it. I think once we get to the sort of last third or whatever it is where. They arrive at the final location, interact with the new character, and exposition starts happening. I just like, I just, I was like, oh, you lost me. I'm not, I'm like, because it stops being this slow tension build and becomes this like literal flashing lights and like crazy music playing. And then people just saying stuff that, in my opinion, doesn't really make sense. (laughs) No, it doesn't make sense at all. And it just, it really, like, I, I, I couldn't believe how into it I was before versus how, because, like, if you go back to our, our talking about Sensor, Sensor, I was intrigued at the beginning, like, oh, this is interesting. I really like this premise. Let's see where this goes. And then by the end, I was like, oh, okay, you didn't really go anywhere with it. This film, I was like, oh, my God, I love this movie. And then it just slowly, as soon as the strobe started happening, I was like, all right, I mean, you're, you're getting a lot of mileage out of those strobes. <laughs> And that music. Yeah. And then once once the scientist begins explaining what the strobes are for, and I was like, I don't think it works that way. <laughs> it just, <laughs> and it just became a thing where In- I was like, Interesting you know. though. So I couldn't tell if tonally you would be vibing with it or like I do think this had a kind of Caruthy type of sensibility where it felt like a movie that wasn't wasn't trying to get you on board or not, and there there was something there that I thought you might like. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. It, it it just even earlier for me, it just felt so intentionally off-putting that I couldn't like. It wasn't like I didn't get it. I was just like, okay, it it, it doesn't help to you that this was a uh, one of those movies that I watched with uh, with my significant other on the couch, and I told her like, oh yeah, look at the premise. This is gonna be sci-fi. You know, it's probably not gonna be too like <laughs> scary or violent or anything. And then I I spent a lot of the movie regretting having told her to watch it with me because clearly she was not enjoying it yeah cool uh, well that was in the earth um, the next film we're going to talk about is the literal last thing that i watched at the festival and i said you know what i think i'm good 
I'm, I'm checking out. Like, this is the last thing I need to watch. Um, and that is a little film called Jockey, um, which is a film that stars Clifton Collins Jr., um, who I'm a fan of, um, who it's basically he is a an aging jockey um, who is both at sort of like the end of his career age-wise, but also potentially health-wise too. Um, and while he's sort of bouncing the day-to-day and how he tries to continue competing with all these younger writers, he encounters a much younger writer um, who uh, tells him that he thinks that he is his, fa- he is his father. Um, and it's really just this, it's sort of a, a mix of a guy who sort of just has one thing going on in his life and he just wants to do that thing until the day he dies. <laughs> um, but he might not be able to do it forever because he literally can't do it after a while. Um, and then also a man who um, is kind of, he, he's self-contained in his life. And then now this other person comes in who calls into question why that, whether he should be so self-contained. Um, and it's really just a very interesting journey of, of just what it means to do something you love. Um, I think, uh, I, I assume that most of the people in some of those meetings about where jockeys are talking about like bad falls and stuff, I have to assume those guys are real jockeys. It had that feel of yeah, like sure. festival movie where you brought in a bunch of actual people from these sports and had them tell real life stories to get you invested in it. And I just thought it was a very, very touching film. Um, I love the ending, like the final basic shot. Um, and just the, the way that is the way it's both shot the way it's acted and sort of what that all means in that moment and like how that relates to the culmination of where this person has been over the course of the film. I just thought it was a very, very interesting, compelling, touching film about a, a, uh, a profession that I don't really know anything about. Uh, I've been to one horse race in my, uh, my life where my dad and I went and bet on some horses. And of course, realize that, Oh, you only make money if you're throwing hundreds of thousands of dollars on the race. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed it a lot, though. Um, so yeah, what did you think, Stephen? Yeah, I I feel like this was exactly what I expect a Sundance movie to be. And I mean that as a compliment. Like this was a good, small, <laughs> independent film that is telling a kind of quiet story about a person's life. It is informed by an actual, you know, career that people have. And it clearly has a good number of, uh, you know, uh, non-professional actors playing effectively themselves. Um, and it worked on me really, really beautifully. I think Clifton Collins Jr. does a great job. I always like seeing Moises show up in things too. I liked him as the son here. Uh, it reminded me of a ton of stuff that I really liked, like uh, The Rider, the Chloe Zhao movie. Um, Bowl was a movie out of Cannes two years ago that also was about like a that was a little girl who starts working with a guy who looks after horses and they kind of form a bond. Uh, And there's just, there's clearly just a thing about, about this idea of like an older person who lives a kind of like somewhat rugged, very physical life and them interacting with a child and kind of having like, just having a relationship form between those two people. And I thought, like Clifton Collins Jr. was very, very moving in this. He had a yeah. lot of really good moments. I think he clearly, I guess I haven't studied his physique, but I feel like he slimmed down a lot for this role just to like get in the shape of a jockey. Um, it has a lot of that kind of the wrestler type of mentality of like how far is someone willing to go to do yeah. the thing they love, even if it hurts them. Um, yeah, I thought it was a lovely movie. It was not my final one of the festival, but it definitely would have been a good, like a good close of the fest because it's just the kind of, intimate little thing that if it weren't playing at a festival, you might never hear about it. You might never watch it. And I'm glad that I watched it. Yep. 
so a movie that you definitely would hear about uh, is Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, this is the one film of this festival that I watched that was like literally it, it was coming out a week and a half, two weeks after Sundance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like there, there really isn't a lot of time. And this is one, if anything, that I know we are going to devote an episode to because it is going to be the biggest released when it comes out like a weekend from now. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it, it is about uh, the Black Panther leader, Fred Hampton Jr. Fred Hampton. Um, yeah, Jr. Yeah. I, I forget the, if... The, the, Jr. is the son, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah sorry. So, so the, the Black Panther leader, Fred Hampton, um, he is the, uh, quote, messiah in the film. And then the Judas, uh, the FBI um, informant who basically turned on him and the events that culminated in his murder by the FBI uh, that we've actually seen discussed multiple times, like in the trial of Chicago 7, for instance. Yeah. It is interesting um, to see those, like, it, it's weird to talk about it this way, but it, like, it's like a shared universe <laughs> where it's like in yeah, both exactly, films, because... they're referencing the event that happens in the other film. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and like like Fred Hampton shows up briefly in Trial of Chicago Seven. Uh, I want to say Bobby Seale shows up like very very briefly in this movie too. There's like a there, sketch from the, the courtroom, right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought this movie was awesome. Like I, I thought this movie was great. It is a kind of a biopic that isn't afraid to be like very provocative to show you kind of the the rougher true aspects of what happened. And that's true just by the nature of, you know, the Black Panthers, much like when I was learning about Malcolm X last summer, my understanding of the Black Panthers growing up was, oh, they were violent. They had guns. They were, you know, a militia movement. Like it was very much informed by this like conservative white view of, oh, they were, they were an assault to the order of things. And that was scary. Yeah. And this movie purposely steers into that and kind of makes you confront what they were up against, you know, in combating the police and makes you kind of just look at them in a different way. Like, like Fred Hampton is an amazing orator in this film. He's an amazing rallier of people, but he also, you know, he isn't afraid to like take off the gloves and go fight, you know, like there are shootouts with the police in this movie. There are like, shit goes down and yeah. i think that this is just such an interesting film that is like not at all afraid to explore that dynamic um you know uh, obviously daniel kaluuya is amazing in this movie uh, lakeith stanfield is also amazing he kind of pulls off an almost like walking phoenixy type role as like the sort of unhinged troubled person who thinks that he's in the right oftentimes but you never really know what he's going to do next um yeah, I, I thought this was a fantastic movie and just really, yeah, I don't, it, it just blew me away. It, it reminded me maybe just of the Kaluuya uh, effect, but of uh, Widows, which was another film uh, set in Chicago that I thought just was like the perfect level of brooding intensity and like tackling real world themes, but still doing it in an entertaining way. Um, and yeah, I feel like this is a story that is, it's cool that this is going to go wide and more people are going to gonna get to see it. Yeah, um, I, I thought it was fantastic. I mean, I, I, for me, what it's doing is so compelling because it is framing it from J the Judas character, right? The betrayer. Um, this isn't a story that is following Fred Hampton and then later introducing this character who will eventually betray him. We are, it's, it's completely set from the point of view of the person doing the betraying. And I think Lakeith Stanfield 
is doing an amazing job of portraying this man in a very sympathetic light. Like he is, he's treating it as though he is tormented internally about what he is participating in. And he, he doesn't know what steps are too far versus not too far and what he's doing about what he's doing preservation wise versus not preservation wise. And I think that like, it's, it's a really, it's a really interesting w- uh, way to try to tell the story. And it becomes it, it my, how interesting it was to me is even more interesting when you see the real guy um, in, in his last interview that he ever gave. Um, and you yeah. see the difference in the remorse of the the character versus the actual man um and obviously if you know the actual real life outcome of things maybe there was some remorse there (laughs) um but but i think that it's just it's just interesting to see the way the characters played over the course of the film and and the journey that you go on when you know where it's leading to like you know the eventuality what's going to happen but watching this character make that journey and make those choices and see how the other people view him. Um, I just, I, I found it like a, like a roller coaster ride of emotion. And I think that like just everybody is, uh, yeah, I, I was just really happy with it. I also uh, don't need to spend too much time on it, but like Jesse Plemons is great in this movie too. Um, and yep. I, I want him to be a Bond villain. <laughs> it's just, he, he has this sinister, like, he could be saying good, positive things to you, but you still have this air of like pure evil feeling that you get from him. Um, so just, just throwing that out there. I know it's don't want to spend too much time talking about him in this movie, <laughs> but, but yeah, just, just, I really enjoyed this film. <laughs> no. Yeah. He, he's very well cast, uh, in his role as the, like effectively the Pharisee or whatever in that, in that, uh, analogy, I will say of all the movies that we watched at Sundance, this is the one that I really wish I could have seen on the big screen because I just feel like that the drama and the intensity of some of the moments would have just really, really popped if I were like in a dark room surrounded by people, um, still worked very much on a TV, but this was one like, like the way widows did work on me where I just feel like it, it, it would have been really impactful in theaters. All right. Uh, so now moving on, um, another 9 p.m. block film, and that is a, uh, a little film called Knocking, um, which I, I'm going to be real, real honest. I don't remember the exact setup for the premise of this film, but basically it is a woman who is returning um, from, uh, I, I think she did like a stint, a stint in a um, hospital yeah like um, a sanatorium type yeah, place. yeah yeah and then now she is being released back into the wild um and she's been given an apartment uh, which she is living in and as she goes about her days she begins to feel like there is a knocking that is happening um either through the floor or in the wall and she becomes sort of obsessed and overtaken by what is the source of the knocking is somebody in trouble um and it's sort of a sort of a film about gaslighting and sort of uh, a, a film that's supposed to evoke sort of the horror genre, um, but rooted in, you know, mental illness and a bunch of things. And I think for me, it didn't quite work. <laughs> and I think uh, where it goes to in the end of the film made me actively angry. <laughs> um, I don't think that we're ever going to do a full review of this. Um, so... You're just going to have to watch that yourself to figure out what, what made me actively angry. <laughs> but, 
Yeah. What did yeah, you think, I know. <laughs> I know what it is. Uh, I, I thought it was fine. I, I thought this was a t- totally fine movie uh, with a quite good lead actress. Like she's interesting because she doesn't fit your typical expectation of like a lead actress. Uh, like she's a little bit older. She, the character she plays is clearly troubled from the jump. It isn't like she seems perfectly fine. And then the events cause her to unravel. It's this interesting movie about like questioning your own judgment and, you know, kind of like what Elizabeth Moss does in invisible man of like, you have a character who has reason to feel unreliable and yet they are convicted in this moment. And you kind of watch them, grapple with that tug of war. I, I thought like she brought an interesting fragility to it that I liked, but overall, yeah, the movie, you kind of knew where it was going from the second it started. And it was like, it can only end one of maybe two ways and either way is not going to be that satisfying. Um, <laughs> and then it, yeah, I don't know. I, it, it, in the end, I thought this was too simple a story to really justify like a feature length. Yeah. I feel like a short would have been a better, a better duration for a movie like this. Cause it, it stretches to the point where you're like, okay, come on get to the next part. We get it. We get the metaphor. We get what is going to happen. Just like, you know, cut 30 minutes and make this into a short film. Um, but it was fine. I I was completely happy enough that I watched it just like a straight down the middle, whatever kind of movie for me. So, so let me ask you a question. I mean, so, so this, this was, uh, do you remember which country the film comes from? Uh, Sweden, Sweden. Okay. Um, so it was, it was a foreign film and I don't know how, this type of film goes not American style, but like the entire ending of this film, all of the extra information you get comes over basically a walkie talkie. (laughs) Um, um, And the camera is staying in one spot while you're listening to events that are happening somewhere else. In an American film, right? You could say that like, oh, that was added after the fact because people in focus groups didn't like some aspect of the way this film was ending. So they did like some sort of audio reshoot and layered that over the top to give an ending that made things more clear or communicated one point that they wanted people to take away instead of another point. Um, Do you think that would potentially be possible in this situation? Or do you think this is probably always the intended? No, I mean, not for a a festival film, right? Like, (laughs) like this has to be their first shot at it. I think it was always intended, and it is just a little... It's more on the nose than it needed to be. (laughs) Cool. Let's see. Oh, yeah. So, uh, up next is a movie that I was... I was somewhat excited to watch, though I admit by the time the slot came, it was in one of those days when I was watching way too many things back to back. I was already getting a little bit more tepid about uh, Robin Wright's directorial debut, Land. Um, This is a film about a woman who suffers a personal tragedy. And after that, she moves away to buys like a big area of property out in the middle of nowhere with a cabin and access to a lake and stuff and wants to fend for herself and just never see another human being. And this is about kind of her first year living in isolation and what that does to her. Um, I hated this movie. (laughs) This is maybe the only, the only Sundance film that I just actively really, really, really disliked. Um, Wait a second. (laughs) By the way. When you sent me that text that said, how would you feel if Land was my favorite film of the festival? 
I and I took that to mean you genuinely liked it and you assumed I hated it. Um, <laughs> so I, I mean, if I could peel back the curtain a little bit, Stephen made this gnarly spreadsheet uh, where we could put the things that we saw and whether or not we want to talk about them um, as potential single uh, individual reviews. And um, I put the checkbox next to land because you said that you wanted to talk about it, not because I was particularly fond of talking about it. <laughs> but anyways, oh, okay. sorry. Okay. So See, Steven... I thought you were going to defend the movie. I didn't think you loved it, but I thought you were here to defend it and you were shocked that I hated it so viscerally. <laughs> no, I... <laughs> Steven, you can't text me when my brain is mush from seeing too many films and expect me to pick up the nuance of your sarcasm. <laughs> And yet, I think we both picked up immediately that the other four-letter movie we were talking about was wild, right? So, <laughs> so clearly, even when our brains are mush, we can figure out some stuff. Um, no, that's not yeah, what I was talking about. See, oh, really? I, t I took you at your word, which means I was referencing a film that is actually, in fact, my favorite film of this festival, um, mm. which we'll get to sometime soon. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, there won't be too many disagreements on that one that you're referring to. But okay. anyway, um, <laughs> th this movie. So of course, this was not fair of me to to the film. You know, uh, I was tired. This was probably movie number like six of the day that I was watching. Um, it is a very slow paced film. It is directed by and starring Robin Wright. And it is almost exclusively just focusing on her surviving. So like right out of the gate, it just felt very kind of egocentric to me. Like the, the classic, an actor makes a movie and they think this is the most meaningful thing in the world they can do. Um, and then I just thought it got progressively more infuriating. Like it became misery porn, but I didn't feel bad for her at all. <laughs> <laughs> um Anyway, so the, the letterboxed review that I left was Karen goes camping or how I bought a shit ton of land, almost died and learned life lessons for BIPOC who thanked me for needing them. <laughs> Which, <laughs> oh. like, like this movie just goes in some, I thought, really like terrible, cliched, silly directions. Um, it, it does its best to cast like some in, indigenous people. Um, and try to be reflective of the land. And that only makes it worse to me that like white, wealthy Robin Wright is making this movie about how meaningful it is to be in nature and look at all these people who show up and help me because of how wonderful they are. It, it all just felt like very condescending and cheesy. And like, I don't know, I, I really did not like this movie. And I was annoyed at how much time I had to spend sitting and watching it. Dang, Stephen. Um, yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not going to try to defend this film. Um, I I didn't actively hate it uh, the way that you did. I think that there's something interesting about um, these people who don't care about the outside world and just trying to survive on their own. And like the way the guy, the guy that she does end up encountering, who does teach him stuff, um, the way he's sort of like respectful of the fact that she doesn't want to be connected to the real world anymore um even to a fault maybe <laughs> um and i think that there's there's something interesting about just the the idea like this is this is sort of like uh i mean the film isn't doing the same thing so this is not a proper comparison but like in, in the one sense it is sort of there is a, there's a, an aspect of like what if nomad land but the car never moved and it's in the middle of the wilderness <laughs> where it's just like watching a person 
try to live away from all the things and not in a COVID way where you're like cut off from the rest of the world because of necessity, but literally like I can't be with people. So I will not be with people. Um, there was something at least enough in that to keep me watching without being like, fuck it. I'm going to click over to another thing. Um, but it definitely, when it was over, I was kind of like, eh, it was, it was a movie. Um, and it didn't really blow me away in, in any way, but it is also sort of like wild, but not over distance. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I like Nomadland is a good comparison too. It's just any, anything like Nomadland or leave no trace or whatever, like, those movies are just really good and anchored by a really good performance. And this felt more like the, like, I don't know, almost like the children's story, like the Swiss family Robinson of like, look at all the things I survived. Like it just, I don't know. It, I was not in the right mood for this, but it just really annoyed me how grandiose this movie was trying to make her like struggle feel like when she not only inflicts it all on herself, but she like is actively shitty to people who try to help her through it. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think so one that, of the, that annoyed me. One of the problems too is like there, one thing that's really dumb. And once again, like there's easy ways to make this in the script, not have to be this way, but essentially she goes, yo, dude, who I bought the house from, um, can you send somebody up the hill to take away this car? Because I don't want a car. And he's like, listen here, lass. Uh, <laughs> you don't want to be trapped up here in the mountains without no car. He, d- he didn't actually have that accent, but <laughs> for the purpose of what I did. <laughs> um, so, and then he's like, you know, you know, you you don't want to be up here without a car. Like you, you have to get back to civilization in the event of an emergency. And she's like, "No, I don't." And then immediately she does. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's it's sort of just like one of those things where it's like, "All right, all right." Like you could have had the exact everything could have played out exactly the same if the car just hadn't been started for a year and all the engine was like seized and frozen shut and shit like that and just have have her still not be able to use the vehicle but at least have made the decision to still own a car like if you're literally liquidating everything in existence you can spend an extra couple thousand dollars and have a vehicle that can survive being parked on the side of the house every once in a while like it just seems like come on like also she really didn't do it she didn't even watch like bear grills or something before <laughs> before she went out there <laughs> Uh. I also just didn't like the movie plays up through the whole film. It's waiting for her to explain what it is that she's grieving. And it is so obvious every time it shows you what she is like, what she's grieving already. Like it visually shows you over and over again, like, look, this is the husband. This is the this. And then when it finally, like when it finally happens, it just again felt like she's story topping. Like, like she doesn't care about the other person in the conversation. She just cares about her own grief in a way that just bothered me. Yeah. I'm going to be honest until you said it. I didn't remember any of the flashbacks. <laughs> so mm. I was like, I couldn't even tell you what her tragedy was. <laughs> and I was like, Oh yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> well, it ties in with your favorite movie, the festival. <laughs> Wait, does it? <laughs> I think so. I, I guess I don't remember how anything happened. Uh, but anyways, another little film um, about children that uh, I might not have cared for <laughs> was a little film called Marvelous and the Black Hole, um, which is about a young girl who, you know, is having trouble 
caring about being in school. Um, she seems to be like accelerated out of normal school and she's going to some um, like after school college course kind of thing. Um, hmm. And uh, she's not vibing that either. And one day when she is forced to write a story about some career path, basically make up a business, she encounters a woman who is a magician um, who performs at parties and stuff like that. And she sort of gets sucked into um, the, the, the culture around magic <laughs> and becomes involved with it. And then... Uh, might learn to accept her father's love of another woman. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I, when I read the description for this film, I expected a adult film centered around a child, like with the stakes of a real film with all this kind of stuff. And I think what I got is a Disney channel movie <laughs> Um, which felt like a film aimed at young children to watch. It didn't feel like a... This isn't a Pixar thing, right? Where it's like a child story that's accessible to adults. I felt like, oh, I made a mistake in watching this film. Um, and I really did not care for it. And then this is the part where Steven's probably going to make me sound like an asshole and talk about how much he loved this movie. <laughs> I, this movie was fine. Um, okay, good. It, it, was, it, it was cute. To be sure, and like God knows, any movie that's under ninety minutes in the festival, like I just inherently am happier with it. Anyway, but I felt like this one was really, really rushed in the sense that it it's a coming of age story. You know what the main mile markers are going to be. Like you kind of know, okay, a relationship is going to form. They're going to get here, then here, then here, then here, and it feels like the movie was so sure that you knew how it was going to go they forgot to fill it in with most of the details like the the central relationship between marvelous and the black hole um is not actually given a lot of supporting detail in the film in terms of seeing them build a relationship together seeing why she trusts her seeing how they get close to each other why they come to care for each other they kind of just hurry over that so the movie can be in and out in like 80 minutes um and I think that does a disservice to it because you, it, it's a cute child actor, like at, at the center of it. Like, I, I think she was fun enough to watch. Um, seeing Rhea Perlman, that was fun. Like, I haven't seen her in anything in a while. Um, it was charming enough and it had a big kind of finale moment that didn't make me cry, but I did. I felt like the little heartstring tugging that it wanted me to like it all that worked completely fine for me, but I just felt like it was all shorthand. And in the end, it was like an outline of a heartfelt coming of age film and not really like a full one in its own. Uh, so I don't know that it was meant for kids. I think it was meant for us and it just didn't fill it out the way that a movie should have if it wanted to earn all the, the oohs and ahs. Well, I think for me, the reason why why I think the film is made for kids is because all of the dialogue in the film is delivered in a condescending manner. Like it is speaking down to a child always. And even, even when the, the girl and the magician are becoming friends, it's still like, all right now, kids, do you want to see a magic trick? It's going to be really good. I have done magic my whole life and I love doing that. It's like, drop the act. Like, it's fine when you were like doing the performance for the kindergarten class or whatever was going on. But 
like when you're talking to her out of that context, like talk to her like an adult, because that's, this is supposed to be like a story of a child, like grappling with what they want to do with their life and, and how to respond to like dynamics of the family and what to do when you've lost a mother and your father wants to potentially remarry. <laughs> like, like it just, it seems like, I don't know. I, I just felt like all of the performances were speaking to children. And that's why I was like, Oh man, this is not a, like, we're not, we're not, we're not handling children with the respect of thinking they're, intelligent enough to to interact with an adult in 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 a real way instead we're talking to children in a child talky voice and i don't know i just found that frustrating yeah see i i feel like my counterpoint to that is the story that undergirds the flower trick that uh marvelous margo does at the beginning of the movie that seems like okay this movie is expecting an adult to be watching it you know um I do think, yeah, the the tone she strikes when she's talking uh, to the girl at the center is definitely a little, like, it, it's a little condescending, but I saw that more as just being cute, and she's kind of like a, a big-hearted woman, and she sees the world in a very optimistic way, and this is just how she relates to people and how she talks, and not necessarily the movie was condescending or speaking in a little kid voice to me, yeah. but... I like I hear you. It, it was definitely like a little too cutesy for its own good. So I won't make you feel terrible for that. Um, <laughs> speaking of things that'll make you feel terrible, though, um, uh, we're going to talk about Mass, uh, which is a film where I think the synopsis actually manages to not give too much away. So I won't either in, in this. Um, it is a small film with the exception of like a few side characters that you see briefly. There are four people in this movie and it is a conversation piece around it's two sets of parents who are coming together to discuss some tragedy that has happened in the past. Um, you can decide if you want us to say more about what this film is about now, or if you want to save it for a spoiler section in a full review that we do later. Um, what I'll say for now is I thought this movie was great. I, I thought this was a the type of movie that you don't really get that much anymore, which is just an adult drama. Like that is all it is, is adult drama. These are going to be four very much like older, you know, middle-aged actors coming together to have a conversation that is going to ebb and flow. It is going to be very intense. It'll kind of like swerve in and out of the intense drama and then just be real people talking and then something will break again and then they'll go back around. I, I would say it feels play-like in the sense that it would be an amazing play to watch on a stage. Yeah. But it, it, there's something very cinematic about the way that this happens and like the just the layout of the room and the way the camera follows people and the way time passes there. Uh, yeah, I thought, it, I thought it was great. I... I when I watched it, I immediately I was like, okay, this movie is of a pace that I do not see enough of anymore. And I feel like I'm in for a treat is like the wrong word um, because it isn't necessarily treat subject matter. But definitely this is like a meaty movie to dive into. And yeah, I was really glad that I watched it. Yeah, I, I thought this film was phenomenal. This is by far my favorite thing of the festival um, there. I mean, it's probably going to be on my top 10 list by the end of the year um i mean we're still pretty early on so who knows warner brothers be damned 
it's probably gonna be on on that list when it comes time to the end and i just it was like it it floored me like um you know obviously we're dancing around what the 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 actual subject matter is that these two groups of people are talking about but the way it divvies that out like you can assume you kind of know where it's gonna going but you don't know exactly how it's gonna going and like the way that they unveil it over the course of these conversations and the way it is it is two groups of people talking about a generalized subject matter and then slowly honing it in to be more and more specific and then talking about like the effects of what happened and who's responsible and then is anybody responsible and just kind of like the way it approaches the subject matter was so um like intellectual but still emotional um this movie, like I ugly cried during this movie. Like <laughs> Jamie came and checked on me at one point <laughs> because, because I was really not handling it very well. Um, and I just, yeah, it just, it, it destroyed me. Um, and it like, I was like, this is a fucking festival movie. This is like the thing that you go and you're like, I can't wait for other people to be able to see this. I hope that other people, feel the way I felt about it because it's you, you never know like some people might not like this kind of thing but I mean we talked about before like I love people sitting in one location talking and not mm-hmm. talking past each other not trying to say the most intelligent thing like this this doesn't feel like obviously this is like a script heavy film like everything is just this dialogue between these people but the way it's handled is brilliantly and like you feel everybody's point of view you feel everybody's emotion and you feel like as you said that ebb and flow between the two sides and what is going and who's in control at any one moment and these people trying to be good to people who are technically their adversaries and i don't know i just it i thought it was amazing so mass yeah i think in, in a strange way it kind of reminds me of calvary uh, which was a movie that is very much people having conversations about big topics of, you know, life and death and what is the meaning of everything. And it had that undercurrent of like just brooding the whole time. And that like that movie I loved, you know, very much. And this movie also I just kind of was won over by because the, they're talking about very top shelf concepts, but I think they do it justice. Like I think they earn those moments. And I think I know when you cried and the movie, the movie completely earns all of that. Like there, the character building that they've done. <laughs> There's three like good heavy cry moments. <laughs> okay. Okay. Maybe I don't know all of them. We'll, we'll get into them in spoiler section when we talk about this movie in a separate review. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, de- definitely a really good drama. You need to be in the right mood for it. I was, thankfully, but like this is all people talking and they are they will beat around the bush, but only for a bit. Like they're going to get into it and they're going to say the thing very 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 directly and you just have to be you have to be ready to steer into that because this movie isn't going to pad the landing at all. Yeah. Um, but as long as you're ready for it, then yeah, I think this is a fantastically intense drama that should be a stage play if it isn't already, because I didn't do my homework and check if it's based on one. <laughs> I, I didn't check either, um, but it definitely feels like it could be. But uh, who knows? Everybody should see Mass, though. All right. So moving on, um, a little film called Mayday, um, which has, you know, pretty interesting premise. Um uh, some people are comparing this to like Peter Pan with like a Neverland feel. I think that there's maybe a better comparison to like Alice in Wonderland <laughs> in a way. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's literally about a girl crawling into a hole <laughs> and then waking up in another world. Um, I don't know. Um, but it's essentially a story about um, this young woman who works at this event place and 
there's a storm that happens and due to some things, she's sort of like knocked out. And when she comes to, she is on a mysterious island that is run by um, a a squadron, I guess, of, of women who are um, one by one picking off um, male soldiers who come to the island. Um, and it's sort of her trying to figure out if she fits in with this group or whether she needs to try to figure out a way off the island. Um, so I did not like this movie even a little bit. <laughs> um, long time listeners to the, to the podcast know that I don't care for things that are too much metaphor. Like if there is no, if there is no constant in, in the thing that you're watching, like there's no, no thing that grounds it in a reality, even if it's a hyper real reality, I grow tired very quickly of things that are meta metaphorically related to the subject matter that you want to talk about, but don't make actual sense in the context of the world that you're creating. And I think that this film, um, which is too much, uh, it, it, on the one hand, it's too simple. It's just like four women one by one shooting a bunch of guys um, and then having conversations about why they did that. Um, and then besides that, you're kind of like, you don't really get a sense. Like there's not really real world building and there's too much strange stuff like her crawling into an oven <laughs> before she wakes up on the island. Um, that just feels like, I don't, I guess this is artsy, but I, <laughs> it's too much of a thing and I found it extremely grating. Steven, why is this a great movie? <laughs> I, I don't think this is a great movie. Um, this one also had the kind of misfortune of being in between other movies that I was racing to see. So my patience was not phenomenal for this one. I, I will say I, I was more positive on this than not because I think it's interesting. And it's interesting for a few reasons. One is the look and feel of this movie is kind of at odds with its subject matter. Like, like this feels very much like a, like a fantasy, almost like a YA film. Like what I imagine the Argonauts feels like or something like this. Like it, it seems like a, I, I don't want to say wild magical world. Cause it isn't like there's heavy CG or anything like that, but it, it feels like a fantastical story that is meant to be inspiring, but then it is taking on a, a dark subject matter. Um, you mentioned Peter Pan as what everyone is comparing this to. I got almost like a Pan's Labyrinth from it, but it's kind of like a reverse Pan's Labyrinth. It's like <laughs> she's imagining a war as like an analogy for the real life horrors that she's going through. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's interesting. It's like, it's interesting because there's a lot of stuff that if you treat it only as a metaphor, doesn't make sense. Like the different characters in this world have, competing goals and like Mia Goth, for instance, I don't know what she is meant to be in a metaphorical sense. It's kind of like the, the fantasy is taking over the narrative and it has its own story for a while. Um, I thought there were some kind of striking sequences in it. There's a surprise dance sequence that I was pretty into. I, I was not expecting it. Um, <laughs> it had some sentiments that I, that I liked a lot that again, gave me the kind of YA vibe. Like uh, there's something about, uh, Mia Goth is urging her like you're going back to so much darkness and she says in the dark I'll be able to see the stars and I, there was a thing where I could feel I felt like this was a kind of like interesting inspirational movie that like didn't stick the landing like it it had all the components 
And like, I wish it would actually be taken and get some of the YA gloss that it seems like it has and just become a full blown like, okay, this is going to be a a two hour adventure movie where we make the metaphor a little less metaphorical and we put a little more adventure in the fantasy world. Um, As is, I thought it was a kind of interesting experiment and I was glad to see like Grace Van Patten in something. I I liked her in Meyerowitz stories and a few other random things I've seen her in. Um, But yeah, overall, I didn't, I didn't love this movie either. I thought it was an interesting experiment because it was kind of dancing between a bunch of tones, but I don't think it all really worked in the end. Yeah. Another movie, see my segues, uh, that is kind of uh, dancing between tones uh, is on the count of three. Uh, That is uh, Gerard Carmichael's directorial debut uh, about, I think this is in the synopsis about two friends who form a suicide pact, basically, and they spend their last day on earth together. Um, this is one of those movies that I I was not going to catch. Um, you caught it kind of early. Uh, I was negotiating with you about what I should definitely prioritize, and it sounded like this probably wasn't a thing I should like heavily prioritize over like other things that I was excited to watch. Uh, so I didn't. And then I went back later that night, and it was sold out, and that made me want it because <laughs> I couldn't have it. It gets a so then, Yeah, so then when award day came around... Uh, I found some time in the middle of the day to slice this into two, like basically two 45 minute segments in between meetings uh, and, and watch this movie. And I was, I was pretty into it. I, I think this is a messy movie, but a interesting directorial debut. Um, it's like very dark and quite funny at the same time. And it is dealing with the subject of suicide in a way that it is definitely how should I say it? It is not being respectful, but I don't think it's being reckless either. I think it's doing an interesting thing where it manages to draw the comedy line enough where it's like, this is how it feels to be hopeless. And this is meant to be a kind of like nihilistic movie that people who feel a sense of hopelessness will understand. Um, and I think it does well in, in that framework. Like I, I don't know. I, I had some, I had a good time watching this movie. I thought it had some good energy. Uh, had good uh, like asshole vibes from. I'm, bl- I'm blanking on the uh, the guy who stars opposite Gerard Carmichael. Um, but anyway, he he brought some good like Robert Pattinson and good time energy to the movie. <laughs> um, and yeah, I don't know. Overall, I was I, I was fairly into this one. I, I think it's a good debut. It kind of makes me interested to see what Gerard Carmichael does next. But it didn't totally add up to a movie that I was in love with either. Yeah, I think it's an interesting film. Um, I the the humor aspects of it I did find entertaining in this story. Like it, it, I, I, I never didn't enjoy my time with the film. But I also like I want to push back a little bit on shit. What was the word you used? You you said you don't think it handled the material. Um, I don't think it was respectful, but I don't think it was reckless. Yeah, so I do think it's a little bit reckless. Um, when the movie starts off, there's a little bit of a parallel tone to it where it's like, okay, we know we're going to kill ourselves today. So what can we do that we don't have to worry about the consequences of because like, we're not going to be there to cover the bill later or we're not going to be there to deal with the aftermath of this thing. And at first that they're kind of having fun and thinking about like, I don't need like it, it feels like they're going to go down the territory of like, you know, we can eat 
whatever we want because it doesn't matter we're going to be dead tomorrow so it doesn't matter if we eat like the spiciest chilies and like they, they don't actually do this but like it's that kind of thing where you're like okay that's interesting but then it becomes a a film about taking actions that don't have consequences for you after you're gone but do have consequences for other other people yep. and i i think that you know once again this might just be me getting old but like i really didn't like i felt like that was reckless because I feel like it's sending a poor message. <laughs> um, and it's like, I, I don't know. There, there's, I don't, I don't, I don't have the, 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 the eloquence to articulate this properly, but like it just, something made me very, very uncomfortable about where this film starts to go as they explore the, um, the boundaries of what they're willing to do given they don't expect to see it tomorrow. Um, there is also this film commits one of my least favorite filmic sins and that is a character finds out a piece of information that is very important to all of their decision making and they don't immediately tell the other person they save it for like five scenes so they can tell that person later <laughs> and it's like yep why the fuck would you not immediately tell that person as soon as you have this bit of information there is no in no world would this person withhold this information under any circumstance, but because it's a film and you want to have a moment where that is revealed and have it to be very impactful at the exact moment you choose to reveal it. Um, and that, that st sort of stuff just always <sighs> makes me shake my head. No, I, I hear you. I, I definitely agree with the second one. Um, there are a few shortcuts the script takes that I think is what keeps this from being a great movie. Um, I, I think in general, too, the ending is not great. It kind of like loses control of the thread and just decides to bail on the movie and be like, OK, fuck it. Let's go out in like a blaze of whatever. <laughs> like, let's just end the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I just think to the first point, the this is definitely having them make a lot of decisions that would be terrible ones in real life. Like, and I think the reason that doesn't feel reckless to me is I think the movie makes you aware of who these people are and the fact that they are being very selfish and that they aren't thinking totally clearly. And I, I watched it assuming that we are meant to believe the audience knows that the fact that they're planning this stuff is kind of crazy. <laughs> um, like I, I think the fact that it's played as a little, it's played as kind of motivational, and I think that is the funny dark thing about it because like it should not be a motivational story, uh, but the fact that it kind of plays that way and the nonchalant way that they like plan things and help each other out, and there's like a there's a comment uh, Christopher Abbott makes about like man, it's hard not to feel like a hypocrite with all the gun control shit I post online. Yeah. Uh, like like there are just lines like that that I thought were like a really funny kind of. B blurring of blurring of boundaries in a way that I didn't feel like anyone would watch the movie and misunderstand what they should or shouldn't do, but more that it's just dabbling in imagery that is maybe, you know, kind of frightening territory, especially depending on what other movie you watched shortly before this one. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Steven and everybody knows that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is the villain of Wolf of Wall Street too. <laughs> mm. No, I know you're right. I'm I'm not holding this the same standard that I held Wolf of Wall Street to. I will go back and give Wolf of Wall Street a must see. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
All right. Anyway, so let's move on to uh, the next one in the group. And that is a little film called One for the Road, um, which is sort of the story of uh, one man who is, um, you know, he has cancer and he's looking at maybe his last days on this earth. And he is trying to get in touch with, um, you know, an old friend, um, ex-girlfriends and kind of make some trips as he prepares to to die um, to try to, you know, do stuff, mend things, kind of just basically he's trying to un, unburden his soul, <laughs> essentially, by interacting with these different people. Um, uh, yeah, so th- this was one of the films that... So, so pulling back the curtains again... Um, uh, as we were trying to pick, like Stephen referenced that I I picked a bunch of the films that we were going to see in the festival and I wasn't picking them necessarily on any specific factor like in some cases like we knew actors or actresses we knew directors we knew people involved in projects and we threw them on the list um, the day that uh, One for the Road was on there I was like oh One for the Road uh, definitely seems up Stephen's alley at the very least um, and I was like we should probably see this but when we thought we could only see the things that we reserved, we could see two films or we could see just one for the road. Um, at the time, I didn't know that it was something that you could fit multiple things into the block. Um, so I wasn't going to see this until like two days later, but I was able to shove it in between those first <laughs> things that we saw. And uh, I'm very, very glad that I fit it in because I really, really like this film. Um, it is first of all this film has like style oozing out of its nose like it is very very um it is a flashy film it references like other filmmakers style of filmmaking um it has scenes that you think they're one thing and they suddenly become another thing it has a lot of like you know beautiful shots and and really interesting uh things to do but it's also this very interesting story of um just this guy trying to set right things that he might have fucked up in the past. And the way it handles each of these situations, I found very interesting, especially because like, I'll be honest, this guy's kind of an asshole. <laughs> like like yep. you're, you're not really rooting for him, but there's still a sympathy there. And you're, you're watching this interaction and it's like, if interactions go well, you kind of, you're in a way you're almost mad that they're going well because you're like you don't deserve this to go this well and then if they don't go well you're kind of like sorry that they didn't go well and you're you're kind of watching this like rolling journey of this guy and this friend too who's taking him around he doesn't want to be there and he is sort of feeling something as he watches all of these transactions happen basically um and it's it's like this really really long journey of individual scenes that are really fun and exciting and then sort of the movie takes this sort of turn towards the end where it like goes back in time and shows you a whole other side of all the events that you've kind of seen up until now and i just something worked real real well um about this film for me um i'm probably not gonna be able to uh, ever order in a public bar when we can go back to those a New York whiskey sour because I'll probably cry when I order it. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I, I just I found this a really fun and endearing film, and yeah, just like it, it made me super emotional. Even though there was like characters that I was mad at at decisions they make, and I was like, man, I kind of don't like this guy, but also this film is just very very enjoyable. Yeah, I I quite like this movie. Um, like you mentioned, the styles that it emulates. One of them that it definitely does uh, is the person that it was produced by, Wong Kar Wai. 
Um, this is a film that actually shares a lot in common with his body of work, which is like, it is very much about a relationship and it's kind of about simple relationship feelings, you know, like the plot goes in a few different places, but at the core, the emotions of this movie are very straightforward, right? It's like, we are friends. These are my exes. This is how I harmed each one of them. This is my relationship with these people. Here's how we can come together again. You know, like it's kind of wearing its heart on its sleeve. It isn't um, pulling back very much, but then it lavishes on that so much style, like yeah. just the the sense of place and the way it puts you in a moment and the way it films like a bar or like a room or two people dancing or a slow motion shot just kind of like fills you with emotion that like it takes a simple thing and then makes it beautiful. And that feels extra special, right? Because it isn't like it needed a lot of bells and whistles. Yeah. Like it just amplified, amplified this very pure emotion. Um, and, and that's what I felt like this movie did well is it, it amplified a lot of pure emotion. I also like the, you mentioned it's kind of like, almost two movies like it it pivots partway through and becomes about something else and those both worked on me really really well yeah um yeah i i was really happy for it and i was happy that it kind of slowed me down like it was at a pace that was slower than most of the festival yeah and it kind of made me sit back relax enjoy this was another early morning one uh, and i think this was good for an early morning even though i was having a cup of coffee rather than a cocktail with it um <laughs> yeah de definitely enjoyed it if i can knock it at all it's only that I've watched so many Wong Kar Wai movies in the last couple months. This kind of felt like a little lesser than some of them, yeah. but I, I think it was totally beautiful and definitely <laughs> was, worth it. Was it a little bit lesser because he only produced it? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I mean, I, I don't want to sell the director short. Like this has its own style too. Yeah, and like it being set in Thailand instead of in Hong Kong, it also has like different look and feel. Uh, so there, there's reason to watch it for sure. But it, if you like this, then there's a director who you might like a lot of other stuff by. <laughs> um, and it, you, you said that uh, it takes small things and makes them beautiful, but it also takes really, really cool things and makes them tragic. Um, like this mm. film opens in New York City. Um, Steven's a fan of New York City, especially like, you know, being in bars and having that like sort of fun life and stuff. And like, by the end of the film, it paints that life in such a tragic light. <laughs> like, like yeah. when it starts, you're like, oh, this guy has like got it all. <laughs> you realize that he literally has nothing, <laughs> uh, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, the other thing that I really, really love about it, which I st this still might be one of those things where it's a total cheat, but it works so well that I love it. And that is, um, so the, the, the guy that the story is, is following, he is, he has cancer. Um, and he is obviously like <laughs> looking for a trajectory of, of him passing away, but his father also had cancer and died. Um, and this story is sort of narrated in a weird way. His father who had died of cancer had this like late night radio station um, where he would just play music for people who are like feeling alone or maybe like whatever. And it's like this, he has this box of tapes of his father's radio show, like just like the entire history. And like the fact that this entire movie, the progression of the film is narrated in a way by these moments of like playing this specific song for the specific reason or going out to these people who are feeling alone while he's going to like meet these exes and stuff. I don't know, just that, that sort of, um, conceit was just like a nice, beautiful, maybe cheat, as I say, like, but like it just, it really, I think it really worked really, really well for me. Yeah, it, it does. And like to, to get back to it being like very straightforward emotions, but them still being beautiful. Like 
there is a moment when he is basically saying goodbye to his father and he listens to his father play the Cat Stevens song, Father and Son. <laughs> like, yeah. like the, it is like very direct. And yet I teared up when it happened, <laughs> like, because this is the kind of movie that just does that to you, um, which, which is great. It, it's the great kind of movie to watch at a festival. I, I, I do have a question about that scene specifically. He didn't have the ashes before that scene, right? Like he definitely... I think they went and picked them up. Yeah, yeah. But like, it seems like he picked them up from a place where there just was an urn. <laughs> like, no, I, re- I remember them needing to like write something down or check something out. I, I think they do. They cover it, even though I don't really remember how okay. it happened. Because in my head, they went to some sort of like structure that in my head is like the equivalent of like a tombstone. And then he just like yoinked... <laughs> the ashes from that to take and do that but whatever i might have yeah i i want to say the tombstone was like connected to a place where such things are housed but i i don't remember for sure <laughs> such things um yeah cool hey i don't want to spoil what's in the urn that would be a major spoiler <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh another movie uh this is one that i caught quite late in the festival and you caught fairly early so i felt like i was playing catch up for a while trying to see it uh was the uh documentary by quest love summer of soul uh about a music festival that took place in i believe the summer of 1969 in harlem um which yet another movie in the black panthers universe um (laughs) this is like a particular period of time uh that i felt like got a lot of love at sundance Uh, and yeah this is a movie about basically a forgotten music festival um tons and tons of famous people performed here um stevie wonder is there nina simone is there jesse jackson is like preaching along with a band uh there are gospel singers there's rock and roll groups there there's the works and uh yeah, I was pretty taken with this movie. I, I thought this was a really, really good concert documentary. Uh, I think Questlove does a good job of, despite being a famous person directing it, not injecting himself into the movie much at all. Like, he really lets this unearthed footage do the majority of the talking instead. Uh, and I think he just shows a lot of respect to, like, all the great art that was going on then and what it meant in Harlem for that all to come together and kind of how tragic it is that, you know, people remember Woodstock, we remember the Monterey Pop Festival, and then nobody ever talks about this kind of huge moment that took place for free in, you know, Manhattan in 1969. Uh, And the fact that this has been buried for so long is just kind of ridiculous. Um, But the I will admit, I was. I think I texted you when I was watching this movie. I had my standing desk, <laughs> and I brought it to the up position, and I was literally just like standing and dancing while I watched it. <laughs> um, partly to close my rings for the day, and then partly because this, I was just grooving with this movie. Yeah. I mean that the audio is like amazing, given that this was just filmed and then forgotten. You know, fifty, sixty years ago, um, it really sounds like like somebody mic'd up a concert like a year ago with the best possible equipment like it yeah it, it just looks and sounds really 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 good well, so yeah I, I was into it well that's the thing is yeah it, it was there was a whole production that went along with it because the intention was to both film and to sell it to be distributed and basically nobody wanted it um so it just got shelved um so it was like it was a surprisingly high production value um for it way more than you would expect um otherwise but um, but yeah, I, I found it an incredibly entertaining film. Um, I think that, you know, part of it is just, you know, the great music, <laughs> but it's like when, when you're talking, like 
in in the past when I owned DVDs, I owned a number of you know concerts, like live performances, basically of bands that I liked. Um, but when I watch those, I'm not watching them for the experience of having been there or what it meant to people in the crowd. I'm watching that live performance of a band that I like. And I, I, it's like the crowd doesn't matter to me when I'm watching those DVDs. This is very much the opposite of that. This is, we're going to literally play set by set <laughs> through the days, what was going on. And then we're going to talk to people who were there or who were performing or who were part of, you know, arranging things and just kind of talk to them about what that concert meant to them, what was going on at the time, um, a little bit about the history of like the fact that it was being recorded and never unearthed. Um, and it was just like a very interesting way to cover this, um, this material. And it just kind of like kept me like, okay, this is, this is nice. <laughs> like I'm, I'm down for this. Um, so yeah, I, I, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and I was kind of surprised how much I did enjoy it because like, when I was just going through the list, I didn't even read the whole description. It was kind of like, oh, like, I don't, I'm not going to like spend a, a festival slot to watch uh, a concert that happened like so long ago. But then like when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is way more than what I kind of expected from it. And I really, I was really kind of uh, uh, moved by it. So, yeah, I, I also thought the, the, and again, a director of a documentary, I don't know how much credit to give them versus the editor or where the line, like, I have no idea what the roles are. But for a first time documentary filmmaker, I thought this was like, really well done by Questlove too. like, th there are a lot of moments where in a very short period of time, he communicates a ton of the context you need for like one that sticks out to me is there's a moment when he's he's talking about the build up to the festival and why it was so needed and why tensions were high, where there's just a a trail of basically eulogies by people for a person that passed away before them. And then up next is the eulogy for them. It goes like JFK and then Malcolm X talking about JFK and then MLK talking about Malcolm X and then RFK talking about MLK. And it, it there were little things like that, where it was like in the, the span of like 30 seconds or something, he just managed to like communicate a whole lot in a way that just kept a kind of rhythm going. Uh, yeah. I don't know. There were just a few moments like that. There was another one where Stevie Wonder is playing the drums and like on the downbeat of every drum, it cuts back to a talking head very briefly and then back to him. And like, there were just a few things like that where I felt like this guy knows what he's doing. Like this is a, this is a genuinely <laughs> gripping documentary that is not, it isn't losing the thread of the music, but it is taking time to kind of open up and show you the world and why it would have meant so much to the people who attended it. Yeah. Um, which, gives me a segue to another music documentary by a person who is well known for his editing pace. <laughs> uh, the Sparks Brothers. Um, yeah. This is Edgar Wright's uh, documentary, probably one of the most anticipated films of the festival. Um, his documentary of the band Sparks, uh, who are kind of the the musicians, musicians, the the very famous people that no one has ever heard of uh, is kind of the, the premise of the documentary. Yeah. Like these are guys that were around in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, where whenever they were, they were doing something that seemed to precede a major movement by a few years and then rarely getting credit for it. Uh, and this is a movie where Edgar Wright is basically interviewing the two brothers that make up Sparks, as well as a bunch of people in their orbit, a ton of celebrity talking heads too, uh, and just talking about what makes this band so great and trying to share the love of this band uh, to the world. Um, 
I think it wasn't fair that I watched this at the end of a day that started at like six in the morning and was just nonstop <laughs> movie viewing. Um, I was not that taken with this movie. Like I, I was enchanted by it for maybe the first half. I I was into Edgar Wright is a fanboy of Sparks. And this movie feels like a love letter from a fanboy who just wants to be like, look at how amazing they are. Look at how great everything is. And that that was infectious up to a point. Um, it got to a place, because this movie is like two hours and 20 minutes long or something. Um, it got to a place where I felt like a normal music biopic would be wrapping, not biopic documentary, would be wrapping up. And it was still in like the mid 80s. And then it was going to go kind of in real time <laughs> through the 90s and 2000s and 2010s. Like, Sparks have released like 26 albums or something by now. This movie gives you a section for every one of those albums, including a series of talking heads of people raving about why the album is the most amazing thing that ever happened, why it didn't get enough credit. Here are two songs that came off of it. Here are the lyrics. And it got to a point for me where it felt too much like a fanboy just talking about how these people are perfect and less like a documentary with something interesting to say. Um, I think it doesn't help that because the members of Sparks are heavily featured in the documentary, praising them so effusively all the time, it kind of feels like a thing you have to do if they are going to be the stars of your documentary and they probably would have shown up at the real Sundance if it was a physical thing yeah. and gone to parties and everything like that. Like it, I don't know. It felt like hagiography after a little while. And after like an hour and a half, I was like, okay, you, you can wrap it up. I get it. I get it. They're good. Like they're not my cup of tea, but I get, they influenced a lot of other bands. This is very entertaining. I don't need you to tell me that their 2000 stuff was actually really the best stuff they've ever done. Like, come on, don't give me that shit. I don't, we all know bands that you loved in the seventies. Their album with Franz Ferdinand was not the best album. Like, come on, let, let, let's be real. Like I, I got a little annoyed by Edgar Wright by the end. Yeah. So like I, I enjoyed this film, but also I think that you could watch the opening the closing and any individual like if you had this on dvd and there were a chapter for every album you could watch the intro pick a random album in the middle and then watch the outro and you get everything you're possibly going to get from this documentary <laughs> because it, it doesn't mm -hmm. it doesn't become something else right like you're simply watching the literal creation of 20 something albums and like a bajillion songs that this 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 duo has created over the years and you're watching it through time like it's it i mean it's it, it it's doing a little bit of of what um summer of soul is doing right but instead of covering this moment in history and how that plays into all of these performances that happened on this few days of this festival it is cover every single thing that was happening as these albums were being created and i think there is an interesting journey of like them not really cutting it here them going you know overseas kind of becoming big there then other bands starting to do what they were doing and then like there there is an interesting journey to see uh, of the idea of of how much how m the sheer mass of stuff these people are doing is just fucking ridiculous <laughs> Right. And there is something interesting about watching that and seeing how that plays in other things and t seeing these people who are in love with this band. But it also isn't more than that. It's just a really flashy look at the creation of all these albums and what was happening at the time and what was going on for the band. 
and the decisions they made and it's just kind of just like cool <laughs> like if they if they if they had written tw- 10 more albums in their life this would be a four-hour movie right like it's just it's just yeah. a thing where it's like i get what you're doing i'm kind of enjoying every little dip in as i'm going on but this could also be a documentary series on hbo where it's a 30 minute episode per album and you can just watch it at your own pace <laughs> and call it a day right, right? <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing. It didn't feel like a single documentary to me so much as like a VH1 behind the music special or like it, like like the fact that it so exhaustively went through every album was part. Of it. And also it's just not, you know, I, I get it. Like they influenced a ton of stuff. Like they had like, d- like Sex Pistols, Duran Duran, Depeche Mode, Flea, Weird Al, Sonic Youth. Like they had tons of people on all singing the praises of this band. And this was clearly like a kind of communal, like let's all celebrate this low-key staple of los angeles who has actually like influenced the world of music in an amazing way um i get all that and the love is definitely there but like i got like irritated by their songs by the end like they were starting to sound repetitive when you have to listen to all of them back to back to back and by by the time it was the 2000s and they're like and that was when they really unlocked the new phase when they realized you could just sing one line 800 times in a row yeah, well, and it'll be beautiful and i'm like no it won't no it's, it's not gonna be good yeah i didn't, <laughs> Don't I didn't do realize it. they also influenced Kristen shawl <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah so when i looked at the description for this originally when i like threw it on the list of things to watch i was not certain that this was actually a real band <laughs> And that, yeah. and that, that this wasn't a mockumentary about a fake band that pretend influenced everyone. And there were points in the documentary when they were doing that, like single word or repetitive, like, like I'm going to sing for 24 minutes. I'm going to sing this one line over and over and over. And every time I sing it, it gets better. And sometimes it's worse and sometimes it's better. And then you really realize what it means on the 20th time that I sing it. I was like, is, is this a real band? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I wrote down one thing to say about this movie, which is the documentary now version of this movie would be indistinguishable from the real movie. <laughs> like, it, it is entirely the same thing as anyone who would want to make fun of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Fred Armisen's in the movie, if I'm remembering correctly, <laughs> among everyone else in the universe. <laughs> All right. So um, I think he did two films in a row, but it's cool. I'll. Oh, sorry. I'll go on. I think you did it on purpose because you want me to have to speak first <laughs> and to introduce the world to come. Um, so this is a film uh, that, um, you know, like this is like the the classic festival type of film, right? This is like a period lesbian drama um, about, uh, you know, it's like, what a first cow, um, but it's a lesbian drama. <laughs> um, and, you know, yeah. like, we're excited. Uh, um, Catherine Watterson, uh, Vanessa Kirby, like, sign me up. I'm 100% on board with this. Um, Casey Affleck. But then, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we just, I did not know he was in this movie until I saw him. And I was like, fuck <laughs> if uh if you've listened to recent episodes of the podcast we talked about the curse of casey affleck and how i tend to not really like uh, films that he is in and uh true to form i did not like this film but you know it wasn't because of casey affleck um this is the type of film that i cannot get behind to where it feels like 
you are everyone delivering lines is literally just reading a novel that is written on parchment that is so old that you had to check it out from a special hermetically sealed room <laughs> so it doesn't fall apart as you try to read it. It's just very, very stilted dialogue that is people talking across each other. Like everybody is, it seems like everybody is delivering their own line of dialogue and they're not actually having a conversation. It's just like somebody saying like, where is your husband? Oh, he's on the farm. I made some cheese today. I like to go to the market. And it's just people saying... <laughs> phrases to each other but not actually communicating with each other and i just i i knew like i knew probably 45 seconds in that i was not gonna vibe with this movie and truth truth be told i did not vibe with it at any at any point in the film i really really hated this movie steven well christopher i also knew 45 seconds in that you were not gonna vibe with this movie (laughs) um but I did, because I love me some Catherine Waterston and Vanessa Kirby and Casey Affleck and Christopher Abbott is slowly joining. He's not in those ranks, but he's good at playing an asshole, and that is what he has to do here. Um, <laughs> I, I get what you mean intellectually. I understand the dialogue sounds the way nobody actually speaks. I don't know what old-timey times were like, <laughs> so I don't know how prim and proper husbands and wives spoke when they were together alone, I don't know how much repression made people actually talk that way or not. Yeah. I just know emotionally that worked on me a hundred percent here. And I think it is because of Catherine Waterston. I think she sells it very much because the character that she plays here is kind of like a, she's shy. She doesn't speak much, but she's clearly bookish and has like an inner poet to her. And she like, she wants to say beautiful things and she thinks before she speaks and she tries to phrase things in the right way. And there were a lot of lines here, especially when she is doing voiceover narration, kind of like the, the film is set as a series of diary entries that she's narrating. And then we watch her go through those days. And there are just a lot of really beautiful things of like, like I felt as if she were a full sail on a flood tide while I bobbed along backwards behind her. Like, like, like I, I loved that stuff. I thought it was like, she says it with this kind of, uh, all of these movies, which are now a genre of the period <laughs> lesbian drama. Um, they're, they're always about someone who seems assured and knows who they are and someone else who is kind of has not been allowed to tap into who she is or what she wants in a while. Who's starting to, thaw or come to it for the first time and Catherine Waterston is the person who is like she's feeling very basic things and she's coming at them in a way that is like surprised and she doesn't know how to wrestle with like why do I feel so good right now what is it that this person is doing to me and I just think I thought she was incredibly charming in the way that she played it and it made it completely work for me uh the love story um yeah I like I thought it was simple but like first cow I thought it was like also very lovely and yeah I, w- I was super into this movie even though it was one of the last things i watched in the festival and i should not have been into anything at this point but i was uh, <laughs> i was a fan so if you're into that stuff you should check it out as well i'm, I'm glad you liked it steven <laughs> now does this mean i should give you the last one too to make it even and then you can talk about something that you maybe you maybe enjoyed a little more <laughs> um uh, sure um i'll take the last one um so this is a film called together together um, and it is sort of a, you know, it's like a different kind of romantic comedy in, in a sense. Um, it is sort of about uh, a aging man um, who 
you know, his life plans aren't really working out for him. So he is trying to find a surrogate um, that he can have a child with. And it is sort of the story of him interacting with this woman who was going to be a surrogate and like the bond that they sort of form over the course of this nine months <laughs> of of trying to have this child together. Um, I yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll be I'll be fully honest, Stephen. I knew I was going to love this movie in the opening scene where he is asking her the questions and she's like, oh, I, uh, I, I also have some questions for you, if that's okay. And she pulls out her book and she just repeats back his first awkward question to her, to him. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm going to love this movie. And, <laughs> and I kind of did. Like, I, I thought this was a very, very touching film that doesn't play it the way you would think this type of film does play it. It's very, it's very about uh, this platonic love and sort of people whose lives are not going the way they ex- uh, expect um, finding each other and kind of becoming part of each other's lives as they get ready to um, to bring a child into the world and how they play with the boundaries of of what that means for them and for the child and and how they want to go about their certain behaviors. And I think just I found it very, very touching. Um, I I found it very, very um, funny. Um, like it just, it had, it had a tone unlike mostly anything else. Like I mean, technically the closest tone would be um, how it ends. Um, but even more than how it ends, this is a very grounded, real feeling film about people and their life decisions. Like I, I just found it like very, very nice um and in a time when there isn't a lot nice happening day to day i just found this like a very very nice film yeah um i mean i agree i I thought this was a very nice film i i definitely thought it was like like a small film like not the most memorable one but a, a good nice one that is like you said about two people and it doesn't go the places it not only doesn't go where you might think it will go judging by this kind of movie but it actively talks about why it won't go there and kind of dispels very quickly with anything you might be worried about yeah, yeah. um in a way that i thought was very very charming um i think uh like the cast definitely sells it i mean ed helms is always completely charming and patty harrison i loved here she has some mad aubrey plaza energy that she brings (laughs) to this role um and i i was here for it i thought she was so charming and their dynamic was very funny together Uh, i also loved uh julio torres um who plays like the barista (laughs) that she works with uh i think he made this movie like get a half star more of a rating than it would have for me just because of how ridiculously he sells certain scenes. Um, like this is just a kind of traditional, like it's a kind of heartfelt little rom-com of sorts with two people. And then has the one side character who gets to be extra comedic because no one else is going to go the broad direction. And yeah, I, I liked it a lot. This is the kind of thing that like you, you come to a festival for like, this is the, uh, like all these small moments type of movie where I'm like, yeah, I don't know what it added up to, but it, it was really nice. You know, it, it, it was nice. It made me feel good. And God knows I needed it either right before or right after watching Mass <laughs> whenever I crammed this in. I don't remember which. Uh, I will um, also say that uh, we, we, I always bring it up, but uh, characters that are app developers always seems really dumb. I think he has the most hilarious app idea. And in this film, it's like an actual app that he released um, that, that a person could make and sustain itself because it 
doesn't do much more than what it does. But just the idea of the loner app yeah. was hilarious to me. And I love that uh, your barista guy it, it was a user and was like, oh, my God, he's the guy that made loner. <laughs> <sighs> cool. <laughs> wow. Well, we 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 did all the films that we both saw. Now I think we're going to jump into just a few films that just each of us individually watched. Uh, this is not an exhaustive list. It's just a like a decent number of the ones that we felt like would be worth bringing up. Yeah. Um, so the, the first one I wanted to mention is a documentary called Homeroom. Uh, this was filmed in Oakland uh, between the 2019 and 2020 school year, uh, particularly for the senior class in a big public high school over there. Uh, this is apparently the third documentary in a series that this filmmaker has made about Oakland, um, kind of trying to tap into all the different things that make the city what it is. Um, I was very taken with this documentary. It's basically about, there were a lot of documentaries about high schoolers um, that we watched at Sundance this year. Um, and this was the one that made me feel the most impressed. Like this was kind of students in the school. There are a few threads. One is the education system. What is going wrong? You know, that there are moments in this film where people take the SATs, where they deal with tests, where they kind of bring their home life into school. And it kind of gets at what makes it so hard to succeed in this environment. Uh, but then there are these kids that are just like advocates for political change uh they're like members of a student body who are advocating for like removing the oakland police from schools in general and they are just so charismatic and like driven and focused on this task and i found it just very very moving and then when COVID hits this is one of the documentaries that happened during COVID, so you get to watch people in real time kind of grapple with COVID and spread misinformation about COVID with each other. Like everyone did in the beginning when like, you don't really know what is real and what isn't real. Yeah. Um, it, the, I, I found it just incredibly moving. Like we get to watch that happen. We watch the reaction to the murder of George Floyd and the black lives matter protests. And we get to see ultimately what happens with their eventual aim to get the police out of their school. And all of it just felt, it was one of those documentaries where I just felt like, the camera crew was so lucky to be there when they were and get to catch these moments because it is kind of the perfect time capsule of a particular mood. And yeah, I, I think it just, it mirrors very, very, very interestingly with another film about Bay area high school seniors uh, that I'll talk about in a second. So homeroom definitely worth checking out. Maybe my favorite documentary that we saw in, uh, in the festival, definitely up there. Uh, so yeah, catch it when it, when it comes out. Uh, so yeah, so my, my next film that I saw is called Violation. Um, this is actually one of those films where it opened with the Shutter logo and I was like, damn, that means this is probably coming out soon. Like I didn't need to try to slot this in. Um, but it is a film that, uh, that deals with sexual assault and the aftermath of that and how that can sort of, um, affect a person. And, um, this is, you know, you could, you could pair this with, um, Promising Young Woman, um, there's a lot of places that it goes that are similar, um, but this is this is a film that uh, is kind of a lot about what happens after Promising Young Woman, um, and it is it is very provocative film that's for sure, um, and it really handles like this is this is a this is a revenge film that goes there. <laughs> I'll just, I'll just say that it's it's definitely an affecting film when you watch it. I'm there's a little bit. 
there's one thing that the character does that's a little strange uh, to me, um, but uh, to each their own. <laughs> I mean, um, but yeah, it, it was definitely a film that sticks with you, I think, at, at, at the very least for how it handles the material. And also it's, it's a film that um, handles this this material without sexualizing any of the women in in the film, like the the filmmakers um, who have both dealt with the subject matter in their own lives wanted to make sure that what they were showing was never sexualizing the women in it. And it like they, it, it causes them to have very affecting ways of um, handling the moments that cause this film to unravel. Um, and it, it sort of, it, it's, it's a very impactful way to take you through those experiences. Um, so I, I, it's a film that I appreciate what it's doing. Um, it also puts you through, <laughs> the actual reality of of the taking of revenge that this character is going to try to go on um and uh definitely uh the best vomit scene i've seen in a film like there is there is a oh, wow. there's an extremely long take of somebody for real vomiting there's like like you can tell when somebody's real vomiting versus fake vomiting um uh as somebody deals with uh a gnarly scene that they're <laughs> that they're in the middle of so it's yeah it's a shocking film to say the least <laughs> Wow. So now you said it's going to be on Shudder. Is this a movie you think I would enjoy or not? Uh, enjoy is not a word that you can really uh, put with this film, I don't think. Um, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting film. I'll say that. Okay. Uh, well, the other documentary that I wanted to talk about uh, that kind of pairs with Homeroom is a film called Try Harder. Uh, this is set uh, in San Francisco, in the Sunset, uh, Lowell High School, uh, it's which is kind of like a magnet school, particularly for Stanford and Berkeley, and generally very high-achieving students go here hoping to get into a fantastic college. Um, and yeah, this is a movie about other seniors also in that 2019 class um, and kind of where where they head off to. And what really struck me first about this movie was how totally different this world is from that of homeroom right across the bay. Like the kids in homeroom are dealing with how do we get the police out of our schools? How do I like focus on classes? How can I do anything? And the kids in try harder are like, I only have a 3.99. How am I going to get into an Ivy league school if this happens? <laughs> and if I don't get into an Ivy league school, what is my life worth, right? Like it is a very, very different set of things that they're worried about, yeah. uh, but it tackles them well in in a way that doesn't really make you, it, it does a good job of showing that these kids have a level of privilege on one hand, and then they also have a like a burden on the other. And it, it, it shows you a lot of different facets to what the life is of a kid who is in this kind of situation. Um, I think I kind of related to this movie because it, Honestly, it was just a little bit closer to my experience. Like I live in the Bay Area. Their biggest dreams are to get into Stanford or Berkeley. I did Berkeley and then Stanford. So I kind of I, like, like I remember what it felt like to like get an acceptance letter and how big a deal that is. Um, and this movie just does a really good job of reminding you how stressful those situations are, how every test could like ruin your grade the feeling the day that you're waiting for an acceptance letter of like hoping that you get to do something different. Um, and yeah, just what it means for a lot of kids. And there's a lot of sad things of like fantastic students who get just rejected from everywhere because 
the quota for their high school is too high and you have to be like impossibly smart to get accepted. And yeah. I don't know. I, I thought this was a cool, there, there's a really damning scene in my mind um, between this and homeroom in homeroom. They're looking at their SAT scores and they're kind of sharing them. And they're like, Oh man, I got a 700. I got a 600. The average was an 850. Fuck. And in this movie, kids are like, I only got a 1490. I'm never going to get in now. Like, like the, <laughs> the, the, the level that they're dealing with and like the privilege that they have, but then the way they still manage to feel like the world is stacked against them, even though it isn't, it, it's just really kind of an interesting look at, you know, kind of like San Francisco and Oakland, like, like different levels of privilege and kind of how people how people relate depending on what their circumstances. So I thought these movies paired really, really, really interestingly together. And I definitely think joint viewing is in order to really get a, get a good picture of what it's like. Yeah. Uh, well, continuing on my train of the late night films that Stephen was skipping <laughs> um, is a little film called eight for silver, um, which is basically the, the story of this, um, the head of this town who basically uh, murdered um, some gypsies on the land to take the land back then because they had a they had a rightful claim for the land. So the only way to get rid of them was to murder them. And um, those those gypsies uh, uh, had um, silver that they had created this like jaw with um, which was sort of possessed in a way that would lure um uh, children from the, the 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 town to come into the woods and try to dig that up, and essentially it creates this sort of werewolfy type of thing, um, and it is about this town trying to figure out where all these um, these creatures are coming from and try to stop this curse related to the silver, which I think is like through a title card at the beginning of the film tied to the thirteen pieces of silver that Judas. <laughs> <laughs> was paid for betraying Jesus. Um, I I don't I don't know how we have uh, eight. <laughs> we call eight for silver or whatever. Uh, but there's thirty pieces. I don't know. I don't know how it all, all all. I think I think it has to do with melting down the silver and to make bullets. Um, but mm. I think this film was was fine. Um, but what I really really liked about it was the the creatures themselves. Um, cause they're not, they're not actually werewolves, but they're sort of playing off the werewolf legend. But basically if you are attacked by one of these things and you aren't killed, like tendrils will grow out of your body and consume you and you will become one of these creatures and then you'll start attacking the rest of the village. And there's <laughs> just really interesting effects that are happening. Um, and I really enjoyed just the, like, it was terrifying this like look of like little like branches and shit growing out of you and then you being consumed by this thing which you would become and then now you're going around and killing people so it's kind of like it's kind of like a zombie movie um where you know if you get bit you become a zombie except for it's these hulking creatures that can just like wreck shit um and there is a guy who plays a uh, forget his job but he's basically a person who he's a pathologist i think um and he is traveling town to town hunting down these uh, werewolves and or, or these whatever the creatures are and trying to kill them so it like it is a fine film but i really like the effects and the presentation of what is happening um so it's a film that i enjoyed for that aspect of things and you know i wouldn't i wouldn't try to to sell it really really hard but it definitely is at least doing it, it's like it's like a standard film with interesting creature effects um so 
for that, I kind of liked it. Interesting. Yeah, that, that was one of those movies that it was toward the end of the festival and it could have been the last thing I watched of the day. And instead I was like, I'm, I'm done. I want to, I want to watch Netflix and fall asleep. <laughs> um, so, so I bailed on it, but I did even just from seeing like a couple stills of it, it seemed like the, the visual style of the film was cool. Like that at least seemed like it seemed more interesting than your typical, like low budget festival film uh, yeah. that would try to tell a story like this. Um, so the, the movie that I watched uh, is the one the one film that I know for sure was hard to get into because I tried to get in and then roughly two seconds later, Christopher texted me saying that he didn't get in. Yeah. Um, and, and that is the movie Passing, uh, Rebecca Hall's directorial debut starring Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega. Um, and this is based on a novel that I have not read, but for whatever reason, I've definitely like, I've read things about the novel, like it's come up before. Um, and the novel is about basically black women living in New York City in the 1920s, uh, one of whom is passing as a white woman. So they're both, you know, light skinned black. One is living with a white man who is e extremely racist, uh, played by Skarsgård. Uh, so, of course, you know, he just takes all the shit roles now. <laughs> That's just like his thing. Um, and that, so, so Ruth Nega is married to him and she is passing as white, whereas uh, Tessa Thompson uh, is married to a dark-skinned man and they live in Harlem. And it's kind of about these two different worlds and how, how they see each other and kind of how they long to inhabit each other's worlds or like the different paths that you could take. Um, I thought this was shot in a very interesting way. It's black and white, which is kind of on the nose, um, but like they, they use the black and whiteness to kind of accentuate the difference between light and dark and kind of play with the idea of someone passing depending on how you look at them, how they're acting, who they're around, like, like the idea of being right on the line where you can pretend to be someone that you're not. Um, I, I thought that was interesting. It kind of had a very like literary feel to it. Um, it had like, it had a tone that I enjoyed. Like I was always happy to be watching this movie, but ultimately the, the feeling it left me with was it felt kind of distant or austere. Like it wanted to be very literary and fancy and precious. And because of that, I never really felt like I got a full story. It always kind of felt like, like just kind of like sterile or a little bit like frozen to me. And I don't know if that's like Rebecca Hall wanted to make a very pretty movie and she didn't feel like, she necessarily could dive into the emotions of it enough. So she just let it be like a direct adaptation of a novel. I'm, I'm not really sure, but there was something where I felt like it looked so good and it had two fantastic actors. I really thought it was going to be something really special. And in the end, it felt like it was just lacking somehow. I don't know. I, I was not bowled away by it the way that I was kind of hoping to be judging by the the talent behind the camera and in front of the camera. So still worth checking out. Um, I think... Like, If Beale Street Could Talk is a much better example of the kind of austere, this feels like a novel, but it is so lush, visually stylistic, that it feels emotional anyway. This, I feel like, is if you took um, Barry Jenkins and then, like, zapped out a lot of the emotion. And what you're left with is, like, pretty, but it doesn't really... You, you don't feel what you're supposed to feel, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, th this is a film that, as you said... Um, like none of us could ever get into the premiere because before we even bought our passes, it was already a film that you couldn't reserve, which I, either means it's sold out instantly or they just weren't letting you reserve it at all. 
Um, so on the catch up day, I was coming in from across ta- across town and I got in um, and I was like, oh, it's probably sold out again. But let me just check to see if there's a spot available. Um, and I was like, holy crap, there is. And I had enough time before work started to watch it. So I started watching it. And then I started getting pinged on Slack and was like, oh, you have to jump on this meeting. And I was like, all right, I guess I'm not going to finish this movie. Um, so I had to bail on it in the middle of the screening. But I got to um, I got to about when the the friend that she meets comes visits her in Har- Harlem to go to the like the nightclub thing. Um, so I, I made it about that far. And like I, w- I was enjoying um, like to set up for what was happening um, for these characters. But yeah, it's, it's a film that I'm gonna have to wait until it comes out on Netflix, um, who is the company that picked it up, I believe. Um, so it'll be available for everybody sometime soon. Yeah. Cool. Um, but one film I did get to check out uh, once again <laughs> in the nighttime slot um, is a little film called Coming Home in the Dark, um, which is a film about a family um, who is, you know, they're just having a nice little picnic, um, out, um, near a little stream and they're hanging out. And these two, um, guys come walking up to their encampment and, uh, really fucks shit up. Um, it is about these very, very sinister men who, um, just, really put this family through hell. <laughs> um, and it is, it is an incredibly intense film that builds tension really, really well. Um, you never quite know what the men's end goal is or what they want or what they're doing there. Um, but, but just as, as time goes on, tension builds and builds and builds and builds to, till you reach like, you know, like a big, a big climax at the end, um, which is obviously what you're looking for in this type of film. But yeah, I, I found it very unnerving. Um, it's the type of like, once again, longtime listeners of the podcast know that like one of the things that is most frightening to me is a person whose motivations you don't understand, especially when they're doing something um, out of control. <laughs> and that's what this film is from start to finish. Like you, you, you literally are hanging out with the family for five minutes before these guys show up. <laughs> and it's just a really, really intense film. I, I highly recommend it. Um, it's just... Yeah, it's intense. So there you go. If you want to, if you want to have your evening rocked, <laughs> go ahead and watch Coming Home in the Dark. Interesting. So I will say this was the last movie that if it had won any award, I would have tried to watch it on the awards day, yeah. like at the end of the day, just because it was like the one that you seem to like have really enjoyed that I didn't catch. And I think I could have stomached it. Like, even though it is said to be intense, it didn't seem like a kind of movie that would like give me nightmares or anything. Yeah. Uh, so I'm kind of bummed that I didn't catch this one at the end, but I don't know. I'll catch it eventually. Maybe probably not. Let's be real. I'm never going to watch this movie. <laughs> cool. Well, you didn't watch this movie, but you did watch another film. Uh, why don't you tell us about that? Oh, I did. <laughs> Uh, not only did I watch this film, I incorrectly believed this was titled R Not Equal Sign Day. (laughs) (laughs) I was even typing it and searching it and I was like, why would they name something so hard to type? Like I had to find how to type this like special character, but it was hashtag. It was our hashtag day. Um, and this is a modern retelling of Romeo and Juliet, um, set in modern day in like kind of an... A non-specific area. I think it's supposed to literally be Verona. Like, I think they just take your word for it. It's Verona. But they're kind of doing the Hamilton thing where, like, this is clearly, like, 
kids from like multi-ethnic backgrounds in like a modern day era, even though they're saying that it is like old timey in another place. Um, and this is about like Romeo and Juliet falling in love in the social media age. So it's these people in their twenties who like Romeo meets Juliet by like finding her Instagram and seeing the art that she's been posting there. And then he reaches out to her. They fall in love. Social media is heavily used in this movie. And the style is very, 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 very modern to the point of parody. You know, like this is clearly like, let me cram every possible interface I can into this. And let me try to get a real look at how the quote kids act. How do they talk? How can I make Romeo and Juliet into that? And I was honestly kind of here for it. Like, I think I'm just softened to these things ever since searching. Like, I was ready to be like, okay, show me a movie that's all in a phone screen. Show me TikTok. Maybe I'll finally learn how these social networks work. Um, (laughs) Maybe I'll learn how to TikTok. (laughs) Maybe I'll learn how to TikTok. I think what really hurts this movie is that it wants to be Romeo and Juliet. I think if this were not Romeo and Juliet, I would have actually potentially liked it. Um, Like... It has a good energy, good style. Like, it feels kind of like a music video, but it also feels like, you know, a very of this moment time capsule that I was interested in watching. The problem is hearing people quote Shakespearean dialogue when otherwise they're acting very modern, that does not work on me. Like, people have tried to do it repeatedly. I I don't know why. Um, Joss Whedon's Midsummer Night's Dream, that kind of worked on me, and that's the only one, I think. Every other time I've seen people try to do this, I'm like why are you talking in iambic pentameter? Like, why are you talking like Shakespeare? That doesn't, that doesn't fit with the characters. And the second reason is, I'm going to be honest, I think Romeo and Juliet is a kind of stupid story. <laughs> I think it kind of sucks. <laughs> like, hot take. People who don't know each other, yeah, people who don't know each other fall in love based on nothing, families start to kill each other, accidental suicide pact. <laughs> like, like, it's a kind of dumb story. Um, it's been told and retold so many times that I feel like it's just become shorthand for, hey, I am a, I am a real powerful story because I'm cribbing from Shakespeare rather than doing anything else that is maybe indirectly cribbing from Shakespeare but not literally quoting his dialogue. Um, and I, I just felt, I felt frustrated that this movie wanted to be Romeo and Juliet because it made it feel like people playing dress up in like theater class rather than just making a movie about romance in the modern day. So ultimately... This movie is not really worth seeing. It's whatever. But I do think the style is interesting enough that, like, if the director made another shot in a fake iPhone screen film, I would probably give it a try because he definitely taps into some energy that I liked. But Romeo and Juliet, dumb story. Never need to see it retold ever again. There's been enough Romeo and Juliets. Try something new. Um, all right. So, uh, yeah, I, I did not watch that. Um, but I did watch a little film called prime time. Now this is a film, um, that when I just saw the image for it and the title, um, when I was looking at the catalog, I just assumed that this was a Polish version of money monster, <laughs> which is a film that we reviewed <laughs> on the podcast. Um, so I didn't really, it, it was a thing where I was like, you know, I'll have it on the list for a catch up towards the end of the festival. You know, maybe it's a thing that I can see. Um, but like, I, I think I know what I'm getting into. Um, when I was sitting down and I was like, you know, there's probably like one or two more things. Let me see. Is this like the last, oh yeah, jockey. And then, okay. This is two before the last thing that I saw. Um, but I was like, I started, you know, 
why don't I just do a little t- Twitter search for for this this little movie and see? Um, I think I think I saw Jim Cummings tweet about it um, and ask what people thought of it, mm. and then I that, that set me on a, on a on a rabbit hole of like trying to see what people said, and it seemed like everybody loved it or hated it, and the people who hated it hated it, and I was like challenge accepted i've already gotten i'm already at like a 30 percent of what i really really liked at the festival i was like you you can't you can't fuck with me now man <laughs> i got discovered um so i dove into this film and i kind of enjoyed most of this film and then the film ended and i was like i know why everybody hates this movie <laughs> um and i don't want to spoil too much but uh have you ever hear, heard me, Stephen, tell you the, the we'll call it a joke, it's a joke, um, about the three pink ping pong balls? The phrase is something I feel like I've heard you say, but I couldn't tell you the punchline. Okay, well, there's this joke, and by joke, it's one of those things where you sit and tell people a story, and you know, in a way, it's sort of like the aristocrats, where like you have to build the story up and yeah. like really put people through it, and the whole thing is that there's a child who is excelling at what he does, you know, like when he's in kindergarten, he's doing like elementary school work. And when he's in elementary school, he's doing high school work. And when he's in high school, he's doing college work. And he's achieving all these things in life. And every time he does something great, his dad's like, I'll buy you anything you want because his dad has unlimited money. And the kid goes, great, dad, I want three pink ping pong balls. For some reason, in the telling of this joke, the dad can never find three pink ping pong balls. Um, and you just tell you, you, you draw this story out, you draw it out and you, you just put people through hell. And by the end of the story, everybody wants to know what the fuck that kid wanted three pink ping pong balls for. And at the end, um, the child has come down with some sort of like horrible illness. He's on his deathbed and his dad's like, oh my God, I love you so much. I'm son. Like, I have to know before you die. Why did you want three ping pong, ping pong balls? I've spent like my whole life trying to get them for you. I couldn't get them for whatever reason. And, and I need to know what those are. And the, and like the whole punchline, if you can call it that of the joke is that you go, dad, I wanted three pink ping pong balls because and then you kill the kid in the joke before he can explain why he wants three ping pong balls prime time is the story about a guy who takes over a television studio the night of new year's so that he can get a message to somebody like he literally has a phone call where he's like watch TV tonight. You need to do this. And he's taking over and he's, he's trying to go through this elaborate thing to get, um, to get people to give him airtime. And it's this tug of war between like him threatening to kill like the main anchor and like people trying to come in and him trapping them out. And it's all about, give me this airtime so I can deliver this message. And the entire film, it's all leading towards this big, important thing this guy has to say. And without, Without explaining how this film actually ends, you never know what the message is that he wanted to say. So you spend mm. this whole two-hour runtime or whatever it was for him to try to give a message live on television, and you don't know what that message was at all. And that is a lot to... I kind of like that. <laughs> that is a lot to put somebody <laughs> through. Because like the, the film builds tension well. Um, and it's interesting the way because because he, he basically takes two hostages. One is the lead anchor and one is a security guard. And the way 
those people work together and like what's going on and how the people sort of become sympathetic to this this guy and the way he tries to like he doesn't actually want to hurt anybody and there's all this stuff like i'm fine with the way the film ends like what actually transpires by the end of it i just don't understand like it, it's almost like whatever message he wanted to deliver was completely unimportant like nothing there's no evidence to what it is it's not like money monsters about like the housing crisis or whatever it was about um th- this kid has no reason to do what he did and you like there is a time he has a piece of paper in his hand, but you don't even hear him rehearsing it or anything, right? You just know that he wants to deliver a message and you never get to know what that message is. And like the three ping ping pong balls joke in air quotes, um, I just, I, I don't know what, maybe maybe the three ping ping pong ball, balls joke is a Polish joke. <laughs> and this is me getting, having been gotten back for all the times I have told people that joke over the years since I first heard it. <laughs> Interesting. See, I feel like I was kind of hoping the end of the three ping, ping pong balls joke is that the kid on his deathbed is like, when he's answering, he's like, dad, mom asked me to give them to her. <laughs> like it just like if somebody else asked them. <laughs> oh, did I say pink? I and meant then the joke continues. <laughs> But yeah, so, so I, 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 it's a, it's a controversial film. Like I, there's a lot of chatter of people, like some people thought it was the most brilliant thing they've ever seen. And then some people just really hated mm-hmm. it. And I think by the end of it, I was just like shaking my head, like you son of a bitch. <laughs> interesting. That is one I might want to check out actually. Yeah. Like, like it is interesting though. It's maybe not fair that I know how it ends now. So but, like, I mean, maybe like, I will I, not be. I haven't told you burned. how it actually ends. So you don't know. And, right. and like by the end of it, there's lots of other things that are revealed. Um, so it, it's like there, like I feel somewhat okay ruining the fact that you don't know why he's doing this because I haven't mm-hmm. revealed how the whole thing ends. <laughs> I've just revealed the fact that no, right? I, I think you you might just be teeing me up to like it more because I'm not going to be expecting oh, yeah, to know yeah. why he's doing it. Yeah, because because I, I genuinely I think I like I said the, the the tension builds well in the film. I like, I like the character um, and kind of what he's going through and, and of the people who are participating, like the people that he kind of wins to his side as far as sympathy goes versus the other people who are just like, send in the SWAT team, fucking kill him. Like, you know, like, like every hostage movie has that, right? Like somebody wants to go in flashbangs hot and everybody else is like, yeah, I can save this kid. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's, 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 it's a very, it's a slow procedural um, hostage standoff situation that I think does well what it's trying to do. I just like I need to know why. <laughs> what is the message he wanted to deliver? <laughs> cool. Um, <laughs> so this isn't the longest episode we've ever done, but I think it's the most films we've covered in an episode for sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We we definitely went longer in our initial Inception review. I yeah. think. Or I guess technically this isn't the longest or the most films we've covered. Oh, yeah, because we've had overlapped. And I was going to say, we've had three people doing 10 episodes or 10 films each, but there was more overlap in those times. I don't think we've ever passed yep. 28. Um, yep. 
uh, or 27. Anyways, um, so yeah, Steven, if uh, people made it this far and they want to find you throughout the week, where can they do that? Uh, people can find me at twitter.com slash sdavidmiller or sdavidmiller.com. People can find me at ChristopherInRealLife.com or Twitter.com slash ChristopherIRL. You can find the podcast over at TheSpoilerWarning.com where you can get a bunch of the back episodes of the show. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can do so in Overcast, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever podcasts are found. If you want to know when the episodes go live, you can follow us at Twitter.com slash SpoilerWarning, Facebook.com slash TheSpoilerWarning, or Instagram.com slash TheSpoilerWarning. If you want to get a hold of us directly, you can send an email to fans at TheSpoilerWarning.com, or you can use the contact form on our site. Music for this episode will come from something... <laughs> <laughs> I'll see if there's some promo clip or something that I could use the audio from uh, from the festival. But uh, yeah, that's going to do it for now. Um, now we have to go uh, Rochambeau for which films we're actually going to, <laughs> to be reviewing here. Um, and we'll try to get some actual longer reviews recorded um, sometime in the near future. Uh, but yep, talk to everybody later. Bye. Bye.